Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, May 17th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Did you enjoy your day off yesterday? I didn't have a day off yesterday. Okay, you fled the studio at about 8. Just figured you'd went to the beach or uh, <laughs> lounging around somewhere, maybe on one of your recreational properties. Right. But you didn't. No, we actually gave you credit. We said you had to go to Orangeburg to take care of some situations making the rounds so did we have a good day in orangeburg yesterday it was a long day got back in town about seven o'clock mike 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 did you have a good day it was a long day it was a long day it was good and long can't answer the question yeah i had a good day all right it was a long day make sure you know that kim make sure our listeners know that's right you know it's a long day worked a full day yesterday anything else negative in your world you wish to elaborate on that's that's not even a negative i don't know well i mean those think of this Mm -hmm. did you have a good day yesterday it was a long day Mm mm-hmm I'll get to the good day part in a second, but it lets you know on the front end. It was a long day. It was a treacherous day. Did you? Have I toiled, you know, hour after hour after hour. Was it a good day yesterday, Rev? Yes. Okay, good deal. There Fine. you go. Welcome back. Thank you. Did you have a good short day yesterday? I did. I'm the only person within my listening voice that didn't go to Bucky's. No um, kidding. <laughs> Sorry, I was out of town that? for that. I mean, what's up with that? I, I don't have any idea. I mean, I understand it's a, um, it's a chain of... Uh, car stop super centers, gas stations. Okay, it's not a gas station. Come <laughs> on, man, stop sounding like a child of the fifties. Hey, uh, and I say I've stopped at Bucky's twice in Florida, so I've already been there. You know, I love Henry McMaster. He sounds like South Carolina, but Henry, when the hurricane was about to hit, was it Ida? One of these hurricanes. I mean, we've had a lot of these near misses and hits, and I mean, Hugo's the one that left his imprint upon all of us. But there was a hurricane warning or, or some sort of threat, imminent threat. Um. And Henry said, Governor McMaster said, don't everybody go to the to the fill, to the filling station all at one time. Like, Henry, you can't <laughs> do station. that, man. Don't everybody go to the filling station all at one time. That is a Southern. And, um, I mean, that's old school mm-hmm. Southern. Uh, 843-661-0937. Rev it a good day, but a long day. Now you know that. Mm-hmm. And I'm the only person in this, uh, within earshot, that didn't go to Bucky's, B-U-C, slash e-e-s what are you nodding your head about mike okay you didn't go either um well you're not really a product of the south we, we you know any anytime some sort of um groundbreaking or grand opening happens we just kind of lose our mind there are mm-hmm. two things you'll find about southerners mike uh we freak out at snow i mean if, if an inch of snow comes we lose our minds i mean it's just like uh we, we don't have any decorum any rever any I mean, society becomes less orderly when we have an inch of snow. And then when something like that happened yesterday, I mean, if it were some pharmaceutical plant that was creating or, or manufacturing a cure for cancer, who cares? But if you got a car stop on the interstate named Bucky's <laughs> that has briskets and uh, blown up beavers, then yeah, we're, we're there. We're all about. We're all about that. It is the um, it is the the pilgrimage of the southerner, uh, so to speak. Uh, but it's, it's kind of a big deal. I mean, I've, I've never, 120 gas pumps, from what I understand. We had a, uh, we had a contingency from community broadcasters make their way out to, um, to Bucky's yesterday mm-hmm. and met with the owner, proprietor of, um, of that. It's not a truck stop because trucks no, are disallowed. No trucks allowed. Yeah, no trucks allowed, but it's got 120 gas pumps. And it's got, um, I mean, I may make my way out there before the end of the week because I hear they got a phenomenal brisket. They've they hired do. a, um, I think they're corporate, well, 46 of these things, the the majority in Texas, but they're beginning to kind of um, branch out in areas up and down. I can vouch the the brisket, I, the chopped brisket. Oh, 
So you've had it? Yes. Mm, good deal. Yep. Okay. So Ref has had, well, I mean, he's an insider. I mean, insiders <laughs> always get preference uh, over us outsiders. So um, And the beef jerky, something I haven't tried it, but there's like, like the selection of beef jerky. That's what I want to see. Yeah. I, I want to check out the beef jerky because I hear it is um, quote unquote world famous. So um, Leslie Bucky's, let's let Bucky's be for a second and get to some of the issues at hand. Um, th- there are three or four. Uh, it's kind of odd right now in American politics. We don't have a single dominant issue. Uh, but the media is trying to convince you that this, um, this, this, you know, ideologue who created a manifesto acted upon that manifesto, and we got ten dead people in in Buffalo, New York. We said yesterday, we'll repeat again. It's tragic. It's horrific. It's um, it's disgusting. It's vile. It's all these other descriptives. But I read the manifesto yesterday, and it is ideological, but it's all over the place. It's similar to the Unabomber. I mean, the Unabomber, is he a Republican? Is he a Democrat? Yeah. Is he a liberal or a conservative? Yeah. Is he a radical or a conformist? Um, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, the Unabomber released a manifesto, and it was politically motivated. Um, it's more economically. Uh, you know, it was about what, what you know, technology is doing to the economy. But... Um, it's kind of interesting. You and I were talking a second ago. The last thing I, as an 18-year-old, ever considered was what I'd want my manifesto to be. No I don't know that I knew what the word manifesto meant. Mm-hmm. But that's something on the engine. Oh, that's manifold. I'm sorry. Um, I, I'm, I'm serious. I'm mean, at 18 years old. I don't know that I had any idea what a manifesto was. But I went back and read the manifesto in its entirety yesterday. And it is ideological, but it's ideological from a lot of different fronts. Um, I would argue it's probably more nationalist socialist than anything. Um, and it's, you know, you, you begin to question how much of this is really his product and how much of this is um, plagiarized from other media sources or things he's heard. And um, unless he's an incredibly bright 18 year old uh, who committed a horrific crime. And I guess as we progress through this, we'll figure out more and more about what motivated. I mean, he's a racist, no doubt about that. And he buys into this replacement theory, you know, that um, that the whites better be on guard because the minorities are trying to replace you. And, and you know, sooner or later, how many times have we heard that the whites will be the minority at some point in time in America? I think it's 2048 or 2058. I mean, I'm talking about long-term projections on our demographic and societal changes in America. But that's kind of the gist of it. I mean, he did subscribe to some of the... Um, some of the replacement theory talk, um, and that's that's pretty prevalent in um, in some of these um, some of these blogs and websites and and YouTube sites. Um, and there's some truth to it. I mean, I'm not I'm not defending by any stretch of the imagination. You know what he did. I mean, that's horrific. It's vile. It's disgusting. It's murderous. He's a racist. Um, he should be dealt with as all of those. But, but to believe that some of these fundamentals aren't worth considering or having a conversation about, I think it's a bit disingenuous. Um, you know, if you are someone who believes that um, the nation is intentionally trying to change the demographics in a way that um, not position you as a minority, because that's really and truly, it's not your privilege to be a majority, right? I mean, you would agree to that. I mean, it's nobody's privilege to be a majority, but it is your right to fight and defend some of the things you think are in the nation's best interest. And I mean, it gets no question about it. It gets kind of um, intertwined and confused with racism 
um, you know, the, the challenging part to me when I see some of the demos and, and I try my best, I'm going to say this very carefully. You ready? I try my best not to be racist. I mean, I, I really, and I try to teach my kids not to be racist. Um, but th- there are things we're on guard about. Um, if the overwhelming majority of African-Americans vote Democrat, and, and it, you know, up until now, it seemed the overwhelming majority of Hispanics were going to vote Democrat, then that's challenging to me. It's not, it doesn't bother me that white people could potentially be in a minority in America. It bothers me that we'd be a country governed by Democrats. You know, how many times have we heard some of these liberal voices say, you can't argue with the Democratic, excuse me, with the demographic wave coming your way. Uh, the country's getting browner, it's getting darker, and it's getting less white. And uh, we know over the past 30 or 40 years, the country has gotten um, decidedly less white in his, um, in his electorate. Um, but that doesn't make me a racist. It doesn't make me a racist to believe that, man, we need more white voters because white voters tend to vote Republican, and Republicans tend to be for less government and less you know, regulations and you know, all these other sorts of things. Now, you can twist and turn that into some sort of racial bias, and I guess to some degree, when you when you dig all the way down to the to the lower levels of the foundation, it does have some racial overtones, but it doesn't make me a racist. Now, this guy who did the killing in Buffalo is a racist and and, and mentally deranged. I mean, I heard Bill O'Reilly said yesterday he's a nut job and a wacko. I mean, I don't know that we can psychologically evaluate someone that quickly. He's a cold-blooded killer. He's a racist, and he's motivated by a lot of different things when you read his manifesto. But I've read in the New York Times and Washington Post yesterday that um, that if you're a white person and you, you're concerned about the whites being the majority, you're just naturally a racist. That, 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 is, that is racially. I mean, that, that, that is racially motivated. And I would argue it may be more politically motivated for me than it is racially motivated because, once again, when you look at the political realities, and I'm talking about 90%, 89%, of African-Americans vote Democrat, and up until recently, um, you know, 77, 78% of Hispanics uh, voted Democrat. That's changing. I mean, that's really changed uh, substantially since Trump got elected in 16. The America First agenda, for whatever reason, is very appealing and attractive to Hispanics. It's not been effective with African-Americans. There's a little bit of a change. I mean, you'll see some nuances but, ha- but Hispanics um, are basically fleeing the Democrat Party, um, not embracing uh, conservatism, but embracing the America First agenda, the, um, the fact that we should look after America first. And it's kind of interesting that, that African Americans have not really embraced the America First agenda, but Hispanics um, absolutely have Asians. I mean, I've read some polling where Asians are more inclined to support. I'm talking about American Asians or Asian Americans. Uh, they're more inclined to support the America First agenda. But I think when you read the manifesto, once again, I read it yesterday, it is politically motivated, no question about it. But but ideology, I mean, it's everywhere. It's similar to, it's a less intellectual um, manifesto than the Unabomber because the Unabomber was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, probably top one half of 1% IQs in all of the world. Uh, but for whatever reason... You know, he got a bit off kilter and began sending bombs in the mail. But a lot of his was technology and the 
the way technology was going to affect economic activity and uh, the government was going to basically command and control so many more aspects of the economy. Uh, but but nobody mistake the Unabomber for a conservative or a liberal. I mean, he was just a, um, a, a, a kind of a bright, bright man who had gotten mentally ill in some way, shape, or form. But um, that's one story. And, um, and we can go as far down that road as we choose to. But, but, but the point I want to make is I, I don't believe it makes me a racist to, to worry about the higher and higher and higher percentage. Or let's say this again. Um, the, 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 the most dependable voting block for Republicans in America is white males. I mean, that's just the reality. Uh, as, as, as high a percentage, well, that's, that's unfair. I was going to say as high a percentage of African-Americans vote for Democrat, that higher percentage of um, white males, but it's nowhere near that much. I think the number is about 60, uh, about a little better than two in three, about 68 or 69% of white males vote for the Republican. Well, if you're a Republican and you're honest with yourself about some of the demographics, then you want more African-American males, I mean, excuse me, more white males voting, right? So if I want more white males voting, does that lead me to, to be a racist? I don't think it does. I mean, I want Republicans to win office. I want Republicans to be senators in Pennsylvania and governors in Wisconsin and senators in Colorado. Why? So we can um, govern the country in a way that restricts government's growth and government's force and government's, um, you know, the heavy hand of government, kind of demanding certain things of of me, you, and everyone else. Um, And this guy got into none of that. I mean, it was just, it's kind of spooky. When you read it, I mean, it really is when you, you wonder how someone, and here's what I've never understood at some point in time, I would imagine if history repeats itself at some point in time, the parents will say, we never imagined this. We never saw this coming. Um, I I just don't buy that for the life of me. I don't buy that. You never, um, Dylan roof, you know, uh, the, the Columbine killers, uh, what was the theater uh, in Colorado? Was it nah? Uh, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. I don't uh, the name. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, we didn't. We let, never let me, imagined. This. Let me ask you a question. I'm curious. Okay. Why? Why did you read that? Because I'd rather not. You know, I'd rather not give that murderer's ideas. You know, one bit of thought. I'd, so, what motivates you to want want to read it? Because I think it's part of my job. I mean, I think it's my I job agree. to and be I'm aware. Glad, I'm glad you're analyzing it the way you are because I'm learning. But but me personally, I'd be like, I, I don't want to. That guy went in there and murdered people. I don't really care what he has to say. I'd, about, I'd rather not give his ideas consideration. But he murdered 10 people that that some are trying to turn into a very political story. Yeah, no, We're agree, in the business you know. of talk radio. Yeah. The majority of our conversations are about politics. So when the national media tries to take a horrific tragedy turn it into a political situation, I think I have a duty and obligation as a um, as a radio show host with a loyal audience, however big it may be, to understand philosophically why it is the media is trying to turn this in. I mean, I anticipated this. I mean, nobody's surprised. Yeah, I, and I agree with you because they are going to read it and they are going to use it for political sure. purposes. Well, I mean, ultimately, in some way, shape, or form, you and I will be to blame. I mean, right. talk radio, you know, we, we push this agenda. We're reckless and careless and irresponsible. And we saw them and the way we address start sure. blaming Tucker sure. Carlson and Fox News. Well, I mean, how, how do I push back on that if I don't have an understanding? I don't have Great point. I don't have a depth of understanding of the manifesto. I don't desire to have a depth of understanding. But when we have these confrontations in the in the public square, um, 
the only voice on our side is talk radio. I mean, Fox News does what Fox News does, and Fox News has basically been painted by the liberal media as the culprit. You know, if this guy hadn't watched Fox News, hadn't bought into this Tucker Carlson, you know, replacement theory, 10 people would be alive in, in Buffalo. I don't know how you draw that conclusion, but that's the conclusion that the left has drawn. But that's the conclusion, I mean, never let a crisis go to waste. I want to emphatically state, once again, my heart breaks for 10 innocent people on a Saturday getting killed in a supermarket. I mean, it does. I mean, it, it, it upsets you when you see these. Because why, Rev? Because it could have been the Harris Teeter in Florence or the Bilo in Sumter. I think Bilo's going to bank. It could be the Walmart grocery store in Sumter or a grocery store in Orangeburg. I mean, it does, you know, we, we, we tend to think these things are miles and miles and miles away until they aren't. So, so when I see 10 innocent people in Buffalo being slaughtered and, and shot and killed, I mean, it could be here. It could be your family or my family or Mike's family. And that there, there's a certain intimacy there that I think we it deserves. And, and I always put myself, man, what if that hadn't been in Buffalo? What if that had been in Florence or Sumter or Orangeburg? Um, we had something like that happen here with a terrible, tragic, you know, uh, law enforcement shooting. And, I mean, it, a lot of people's lives will never be the same as a result of that. But, but no, reading the manifesto, I think, prepares me to better understand. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I understood it as good yesterday as I do today. I understand what the liberal media is trying to do. I mean, th- th- this guy was motivated by the right. He's motivated by MAGA. He bought into all this nonsense to Fox News and talk radio serve up day after day after day after day. Well, if I'm going to be portrayed as somewhat of the blame then I want to have some level of understanding in what the manifesto says, and it is politically charged. I mean, there's no question about it. When you read the manifesto, it is very political, but it's not it's not ideological. I mean, it's just simply not. It reminded me of a high school version of the Unabomber's manifesto. The Unabomber's manifesto was obviously written by a highly intelligent, um, out-of-touch person. The 18-year-old that wrote this, if he indeed wrote this, it looks to me like he cobbled together things that he had read, he had heard, he had seen, um, he had had very little original thoughts in this Um, because he's 18 and his IQ is not what the Unabombers is. We don't expect or suspect his IQ to be uh, what the Unabombers was. Uh, But but no, I mean, that's, you know, why would I – I'm not trying to glorify what the guy did. Please understand, I mean, he, you know, I uh, I wish him eternity in hell. I mean, that's the worst punishment I think a Christian could judge upon anyone. I wish this guy eternity in hell for for inflicting the harm, the carnage, the damage, the heartbreak, uh, not to those 10 families, not just to those 10 families, but to the nation in general. And um, but, But I think reading the manifesto allows me to better articulate why I believe uh, the media will do exactly what we expect the media to do. Take a break. Back in just a couple of minutes. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Mike, I think you've secured Congress. Excuse me, Senator, former Senator Jim Dement will be with us at seven zero five. Senator Dement is um actually chair of the Conservative Partnership Institute, but he's coming on with us at seven zero five to kind of preview a very busy day of primaries today, in particular Pennsylvania and North Carolina. We got a Senate seat, um, an open seat, retirement. Uh, Senator Burr is retiring from North Carolina, so you got Ted Budd. And McCrory, uh, is it Bill McCrory? Uh, why do I'm I not, not sure. think of his first name? Anyway, um, 
They've got a uh, a Senate seat in North Carolina open, and then obviously the national scene has paid close attention to. I'm mean, gonna imagine. I tweeted yesterday. Imagine ten years ago, if I'd started the radio show one morning. Uh, hey, former President Donald Trump is going to endorse <laughs> Doctor right Oz. There. Yeah, Doctor Oz, and Doctor Oz is going to get across the finish line of the Pennsylvania uh, Senate primary. Uh, in the Republican primary. I mean, you would have been in, 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 I don't know, declared insane. They, they just stopped you right after you said former President Donald yeah. Trump. Former really? President Donald Trump uh, endorses Dr. Oz in the Republican primary <laughs> for Pennsylvania Senate. Yeah, good luck with that selling to, um, to Hollywood. Well, it's a political reality, and, um, and I think he gets across the finish line. I mean, I really think, um, I think McCormick, is the is the kind of the wild card in this? I think the um the amount of money spent late to basically disparage and marginalize um Kelly Barnett has worked. I mean, I, you know, Robert was on uh I'm trying to think of what is Smirconish's show over the weekend, and they were talking about some of the um some of the expenditures by McCormick and and Oz, and it's the proverbial third lane. I mean, it happens not a lot in politics, but at times it happens. When you have these, I'll give an example. Let's use this close to home. You and I, well, I'm not only about you, but I believe that the 7th Congressional District has turned into a two-man race with all due respect to the others. And I want to say to two or three of the others, you have done yeoman's work in getting your name out there and um, running a very uh, spirited campaign. Uh, Barbara Arthur, Garrett Barton, um, Ken Richardson in particular, those three have really and truly left their mark on the, the politics of the 7th Congressional District. But I still believe when you take the power of the incumbency and the Trump endorsement, it, it kind of, I mean, it's created this, you know, um, separation. Whether it's real or not, we'll find out in, well, exactly four weeks from today. Um, but when you get to Pennsylvania, this happens occasionally, and it could happen here. Um, McCormick and Oz believe that they're in a... Um, you know, a contest for the Republican nomination, and for all practical purposes, they were. So Oz spends millions of dollars telling you how lousy McCormick is. McCormick spends millions of dollars telling you how lousy Oz is, and they leave Miss Barnett alone. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the negative ads work. You know, people are convinced that McCormick's a sorry no-count son of a gun, and others are convinced that Oz is a sorry no-count son of a gun. Well, I don't want to vote for a no-count son of a gun, so here comes Miss Barnett. Kind of in that third lane, nobody's, as we say in politics, messing with her. Nobody's dinging her on any of the realities. And uh, and she becomes a force to be reckoned with. And the next thing you know, you've got a three-way race. Now, that could happen in the 7th Congressional District. I don't think it will, but it could. You, you've, you've noticed recently that Rice is going after Fry and Fry's going after Rice. Missed votes in the House, um, you know, sold his stock before some big sell-off. I mean, each of those candidates is going after one and another. So Mrs. Arthur, Garrett Barton, Dr. Barton, or Ken Richardson could find themselves um, catching a break. And the break being these two top-tier candidates, one's the Trump endorsement, the other's the incumbent, they could uh, begin to basically marginalize one another to the point that somebody sneaks in the back door. And, um, and I think that almost happened in Pennsylvania, but I don't think it will. I think McCormick will overperform. I think Barnett will underperform. But I still think Oz, 
um, for whatever reason, and I have no idea why the people in Pennsylvania, uh, Republican primary voters in Pennsylvania, have taken a liking to Dr. Oz, but they have. And I guess, Rev, to some degree, it's 18 years on television and understanding oh, yeah. that um, campaigns have become theatrical well, productions. And the Trump endorsement. Yeah, the Trump endorsement. Um, and Trump endorsed a guy because he said anybody that can be relevant for 18 <laughs> years on television should be able to win a political campaign. I would laugh, but that's probably sound advice. That's probably sound strategy. Kind of worked for him, didn't it? Yeah, but that did pretty much the same thing Trump did yeah. in a uh, in a more crass and bombastic way. By the way, programming note, uh, Jim DeMint has been rescheduled for 6.45 this morning. So 6.45? Yep. Okay, so Just, we didn't take a break here at about 6.38 or 9. So yep. take a break at when? 6.40. Okay, look, we'll take a break at 6.40, 6.30, 6 now. Okay, good deal, because yep. my clock's wrong yep. a little bit on my computer. 843-661-0937 is our number. So, yeah, DeMint will be with us at 645 to offer up his analysis on um i guess the single busiest primary day up until up until now um well, the pennsylvania race will have something to do with the south carolina race uh how i mean what does dr oz have to do with what happens in the seventh congressional district well i mean the numbers remember yesterday when i said it i've said this repeatedly on and off the air that to me 35 is the number and maybe I can get the senator to go along with this. Senator DeMint may agree that, you know, you if you're if you're kind of the, um, I don't want to say the anti-Trump candidate, but if you're the the alternate to the America First agenda, um, you get about 35% of the vote. If you cross swords with Trump, that seems to be about as much as you get uh, of the vote. So you're kind of, you got 35 the first go around, and then you get a primary, and you're stuck on somewhere between 35 and 40. Let's go to the phone. Barry in Chiraw joins us now. Hey, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, uh, Ken, the latest from your daughter's uh, employment, uh, 28% for Dr. Oz, uh, Katie, 26.8, uh, and 21.6 for McCormick. Yeah. It came out this morning. Also, have you seen the uh, uptick in strokes uh, with candidates there lately? Uh, Maryland and uh, the guy running for governor on the Democratic side, in Pennsylvania, both yeah. were down, down and out with strokes. Yeah, I saw that. The big guy that's kind of the unconventional wears a hoodie and got tattoos yeah. and all. Doesn't look like a typical politician. Um, yeah, I saw that. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate that. And um, yeah, my daughter is in Washington. She actually, um, I told you yesterday, she got employed by Trafalgar in a paid internship. Um, I expected her to go to Greenville. I think we said last week. You know, her first day on the job is Monday. And she'll be in Greenville where she gets a call Saturday and say there's been a change of plans. Um, go to the uh, American Airlines app. There's tickets for you there to meet us in Washington. So she spent yesterday evening at a dinner. Here she is, a, a college freshman, uh, by herself. She's actually with a Clemson student. Um, there, there are three Trafalgar employees. And I guess my daughter, as of yesterday, was a officially a Trafalgar employee. They have meetings today. Uh, but I was texting with her yesterday. Obviously, I want to know. I don't care what she's doing, or yeah, I want to make sure she's safe. I mean, that's my pr uh, primary concern. But um, she said she was at a conference and uh, sitting at a table with Jim Jordan, uh, a couple of other uh -huh. names that we would know. I can't wow. remember the names, and and she's kind of a politico anyway. But um, but yeah, Roberts polling, and this goes um through yesterday. Here you go, uh, Trafalgar, uh, sample size eleven. 95 likely voters 
Um, Oz at 29%, uh, Barnett at 27%, McCormick at 22%. And once again, that poll was taken 514 through 516. Oz has a RCP average lead of 2.6%. That's within the margin of error. And and as, as we said Friday, Saturday, excuse me, Saturday and Sunday over the weekend, uh, Emerson polled and had Oz at 32%, Barnett at 27%, McCormick at 26%. Um, it's close. It's tight. I just think that Trump's endorsement is going to get Dr. Oz across the finish line <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Wow. Who to thunk it? <laughs> Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Have a special treat for our listeners: a friendly face of South Carolina, former senator from South Carolina, chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute, Senator Jim Demint is with us. Senator, how are you? A uh, good morning, uh, Ken and Dave. Great to be in South Carolina with you. Let's talk a little bit about um, states other than South Carolina this morning. Two in particular come to my mind. I want to get your take on um, you're intimately involved in Republican politics, have a good understanding of where we are as a party, where it is we're trying to head uh, to better govern the nation's affairs. But Pennsylvania and North Carolina come to mind this morning, in particular Pennsylvania, because, Senator, I think Pennsylvania is kind of reflective of the nation in general. When you look at the demographics and some of the – political realities of Pennsylvania, it does embody a lot of America in general. Would you agree or disagree with that? Well, yeah, it's certainly a swing state, so it represents a lot of states that are right on the bubble of whether they're going to vote Democrat or Republican, and a lot begin, uh, depends on the candidate and the attitude of the country. And, and this year, it seems to be moving very much towards uh, the more um, – Republican, or I'll just, I'll just say Judeo-Christian type of, uh, or Judeo values. Um, um, but uh, Pennsylvania is a state where Trump has gotten himself involved. Uh, his candidate, Dr. Oz, looks like uh, he has been gaining as we come, come to today. Uh, but whether or not he'll be the candidate who can take us through in the fall is a different question, but um, you're right about Pennsylvania. It's reflective of a lot of East Coast uh, politics, and um, uh, so it'll be really interesting what what happens there. But there'll be a lot of money spent in the, in the next few months on that state. When you look at this, and, and I was thinking about your time in politics, my time in politics. If you and I had been together ten years ago, and I'd have said, Senator Demint, there will be a day that former President Donald Trump endorses Dr. Oz and puts him across the finish line <laughs> in a Pennsylvania Republican primary. What in the world is going on in the Republican Party today? Well, I, I really do think this America first idea is much deeper than just uh, Donald Trump. It's, it's a realization that we elect particularly federal um, candidates to um, to serve the country and, and to look out for what's best for the American people, not people just all over the world or people in particular states that uh, as a congressman or senator, you know, our job is really when we take an oath to the Constitution is to is to serve the country and not just particular needs. Um, but that's, I think, what's permeating the Republican Party now is, okay, well, let's put America first in the things that we do. And it appears that the Democrats are kind of going the other way um, with immigration and even with foreign policy uh, and with a, a lot of the, the 
the, the programs that they want for the country are clearly not good in the short term, particularly in the energy area or what we see in the spending that's resulting in inflation. So, yeah, I think, um, again, while Donald Trump has a lot of influence on the party, I, I think the bigger idea is let's let's serve the country we were elected to serve. But he's still the 800-pound gorilla. There's no doubt about that. That's undeniable as much as some don't like to accept that as reality. I mean, I've never believed that endorsements mattered that much. But you look at the track record, and, and he are, you know he would say he's 40-0 or 60-0. The majority of those are layups. But when you really get to contested races, it looks to me like the Trump endorsement is very valuable in Pennsylvania. We'll find out in the 7th Congressional District here in South Carolina. But the Trump endorsement is different than historically uh, Republican endorsements have been. Is that a fair accounting? Yes, it is. And I think it's it's a lot of factors there with Trump. His policies clearly work for the country, but his just tenaciousness where people don't like necessarily the, the some people don't like personality, the way he's always counterpunching every time someone comes after him, he he's going to punch back. But that style of, of kicking down doors in Washington appeal to a lot of Americans who are stick, uh, just sick and tired of the status quo. Of, of politicians uh, kind of enriching themselves instead of, instead of serving the country. And it, it turned out that he was probably better than just about any other politician I know at keeping his promises. It's not the style I prefer, but sometimes nice doesn't work in Washington. And I think America likes to see someone who's really going to stand up and fight and a lot of people have said that, you know, I would have never said something like that, but I'm glad he did. They, he, he's kind of speaking for people who are just sick and tired of being afraid to say what's on their mind. But as someone who has dedicated their public life to what I'd call intellectual conservatism, uh, I guess I learned reading the National Review and George Will and William Buckley, is there a conceivable way to intertwine what I'll refer to as Trumpism and the, the intellectual conservatism that I still believe is necessary as a major ingredient in a, in a Republican Party that does advance a conservative agenda? Well, I think so. There are not too many things that uh, Trump was uh, different on than, than what I would call intellectual conservatism. And the, the, he didn't want to be the policeman of the world. He really didn't want to get us in wars. Um, he, he wasn't necessarily uh, somebody trying to cut the budget when he was in there, but he came in on the heels of Obama, and there were a lot of things that needed to be done. Um, so, yeah, I, I, he's not necessarily a, a kind of a, a book-learning type of conservative, but his instincts are very much towards uh, less government, federalism particularly. He wanted to push more things back to the states. So um, we certainly didn't run into too many times where he was going in a different direction than what we considered true conservative policy. My last question, appreciate your time, with former Senator from South Carolina, Jim DeMint. He's also chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute. There have been some Republicans that refused to accept Trump into the fall. Um, They supported Joe Biden. They endorsed Joe Biden. They have um, basically fled uh, the party that, that, that gave them the political opportunity of of their lifetime. Do we try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, or do we let what we'll call the never-Trumpers, what the media refers to as the never-Trumpers, go their merry way? 
Well, some of those people were like never Tea Party. I mean, when when you have people who are are trying to to change what the direction of the country, which is clearly not good right now, um, there are a lot of establishment people who who get their power from keeping the things the way they are. And so they don't, they're not going to like people like Trump who stir things up. They didn't like people like me for a large part in Washington. Uh, and I was much nicer about it. So they're not going to like you just because you're nice. They don't want you disturbing the status quo. So, um, again, they blame it on personality, but mostly it's because people, it's what, what we sometimes call rhinos or people who didn't believe in the conservative ideas anyway. Before I jump off, so let, me, let me just mention a book I've been talking about around the country that uh, is a little change of direction here this morning. But I wrote a book last year called Satan's Dare. The reason I did, it's, it's a book about the truth of the Bible, about God, about um, uh, uh, Judeo-Christian values. And the reason I did is so much of politics now seems to be anti-God and anti-Christian, uh, anti-Judeo-Christian values. And I'd love for people in South Carolina to read Satan's Dare. It's on Amazon, uh, so I appreciate you letting me have a chance to mention it. Senator Man, appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day, sir. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. We'll take a break. We'll be back on the other side. Wake up Carolina on a Tuesday morning. 843-661-0937 is our number. Another day in paradise. Rev back in the fall. Mike did a good job yesterday. Kind of uh, double duty while Rev took a day off and uh, <laughs> I was working. Did whatever it is the jet setters do <laughs> when they, when they, it was a long day though, right? Mike, it was a long day. Uh, a good day, but a long day, nonetheless. That, that is true. It was a long day. I had to drive for a while and get to our oh, uh, yeah. facility. But. That driving is treacherous. Yeah. <laughs> that driving from here to Orangeburg, I don't know how you do it by yourself. Mm, uh, your, to your, um, your, your performance continues to amaze me, Rev. Oh, it really you. does. Thank you. Uh, well, what you that. What you ask of yourself is just mind-boggling <laughs> as far as... As far as I'm concerned, you're, you're driving all guy. the way from here to Orange. All right. Back, yeah, you, did you stop the... at a Bucky's on the way? <laughs> no, I should have. Okay. <laughs> I was probably the one person that didn't go to Bucky's. You're the yesterday. only son of a gun in South Carolina that wasn't at Bucky's yesterday, right. I think. I am looking forward to going at some point, though. And, I, and I've been to a Bucky's in Florida, so I know what it's about. I've never been to a Bucky's, mm-hmm. but I may try to make my way out to a. Um, oh, you need to, to see the, uh, the Disney World of. Car stops, not yeah. truck stops, right? Yeah, it's no, yeah, no trucks allowed. No trucks allowed. By the way, but yeah, says Bucky the if, Beaver. If you can time it to where you have to use the bathroom, <laughs> mm. it's just that they're kind of known, I think, for their bathrooms are. What do you mean they're known for their bathrooms? And, I mean, I th- that's just something when you think of Bucky. Clean and luxurious. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm cool with clean. Yeah, but, but I luxurious think, yeah, for private stalls and okay, yeah, it's pretty nice. Good deal. Yeah, good deal. That's, that's kind of one of the things. You know more about Bucky's than I do. <laughs> I've been that's, there. I told that's you. pretty obvious. Been to, been to uh, two of them okay. in Florida. Good deal. Uh, so Senator DeMint was on with us a few minutes ago, and it's interesting to hear when you were asking him about Donald Trump and America first, kind of where he lands, because he, he was a Tea Party guy when he was a senator, for mm-hmm. sure, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he didn't make a lot of friends uh, being a Tea Party guy in Washington. So he was obstinate. What do you make of that? Um, I just think he sees the writing on the wall. Look, guys, at times, I mean, it doesn't matter what you want things to be. He like. gave a pretty good analysis of the electorate. I thought where Republican voters are. Now. I'll give you. I'll give an example. Let's use um. We, we we're big college football fans here. Uh, you're a Gamecock fan. I'm a Gamecock mm-hmm. fan. Um, it doesn't matter what I think about Clemson football right now. The last ten years, they've kicked butt. 
I mean, they've been, you know, seven years yeah. in particular, they've been on top of their game. It doesn't matter what I wish were or what I'd like for it to be or what I anticipated to be 10 years from now. you got to play the hand you're dealt. And in the moment, Clemson football is light years better than South Carolina football. Um, there's no debate to be had there. I mean, Beamer's recruiting and he's trying to get better and you hope the Dabo falls off a little bit. Um, but 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 the snapshot in time, it doesn't matter what you think or what I think or what you aspire things to be like, what I wish things were like. I mean, the reality is America first won. I mean, I've got a lot of Tom Rice friends of mine who, um, you know, we'll, 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 we'll cordially speak about these things. But they'll say, you know, I don't like the way this, or I don't like the way that, or I, you know, I'd rather it to be the other way, or I'd rather it be that way. To me, none of that matters. It is what it is. We are where we are. We're not having a battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party. We had a battle over the last four or five years, but that battle's been settled. The, the Republican Party has made its mind up via its voters that is going to be an America First Party. Um, the establishment, the elites, the, the Liz Cheney's of the world. Um, yeah, so they, they push back. They resent it. The Max Boots of the world. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of, I mean, there, there are a handful of, the Mitch McConnell's of the world, the Mitt Romney's of the world, um, anybody associated with the Bushes. I mean, yeah, Carl Rove, they don't like this. I mean, I don't like Clemson being a lot better in South Carolina football, but it is a reality. And the same with, with the America First agenda. We've had that battle and that score has been settled and America First won by about a two to one margin. I mean, that's a pretty good whooping. When you come in the world, I mean, 66 to 33 in politics, I mean, that's a pretty good whooping. Mm. 66% of Republican primary voters identify as America first. So when, when Liz Cheney says we're still having a battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party, no, no, we're not. You refuse to accept what has already been settled. I mean, it'd be like me saying Clemson's not better in South Carolina football. I mean, how stupid is that? Of course they're better than South Carolina in football, and you make adjustments accordingly. So the Mitt Romneys of the world, and, and this is where the sanctimony comes in. You know, the, the Liz Cheney's of the world, the Mitt Romney, the Mitch McConnell's of the world, um, what they're trying to do is convince um, you that you don't know which way the party needs to really go or head or kind of organize itself. It's the most insulting. I mean, to me, Romney, Cheney, McConnell – are the most insulting politicians in the history of mankind because they refuse to accept the will of the people. That's not an option. I mean, as a member of the Senate, it's not an option. Isn't their job to, to be accept. representative? Of course it is. And the party has made its mind up. This is where we want to go. This is the agenda we wish to pursue. Mitch McConnell doesn't get to make the rules, but he's such a product of Washington. He's such an establishment figure. That, that he just kind of keeps on keeping on in his own, um, as he said last week. I mean, imagine uh, it's either an arrogance or a out of touchness when he says, you know, I think we can all agree that the most important thing on everybody's mind is the war in Ukraine and Russia. Um, I've got a million friends. I don't know a friend. I don't have an acquaintance in my world. That There's nobody in my universe that believes Russia and Ukraine is more important than not being able to find baby formula. Or, or the price of gas. Speaking of the price of gas, um, national average yesterday, all-time high, 448. I checked it at 518 this morning, 452. So we're breaking daily records as we progress. Now, a lot of this is because we're, the refineries are seeing they can make more money on jet fuel and diesel fuel. 
So the refineries are uh, they're, they're, they're profit centers. I mean, that's the, the oil company's profit center is the refinery. So instead of refining um, oil into gasoline, they're refining it into diesel and, and jet fuel because that is more profitable. And we've got a kind of a supply and demand issue when it comes to that. So, I mean, I'm predicting by Memorial Day, which is what? A couple of weekends? Uh, less than two weekends. Memorial Day is two weeks from yesterday. So this coming weekend will be the last weekend before we start the summer driving season, Memorial Day weekend. Gas will probably be 450-ish, 460-ish in South Carolina. I mean, the national average is 452 today. Now you got to include California, New York, and all those crazy green laws and emission standards that we have to abide by. But um, but I don't know anybody. Uh, I don't know a Republican voter in my world that if I went and said, "Hey, what's the biggest issue in America today?" That's the war in Ukraine. I mean, it's it's the Russian conflict. I mean, it's Vladimir Putin. No, they're thinking about baby formula. They're thinking about the fifty dollars worth of groceries that that now cost ninety dollars. They're thinking about going out to eat at a restaurant that used to cost 60 bucks and now it's $100. And I'm talking about a family of four. They're talking about a um, filling up with a tank of gas. I tell you, I don't put more than 50 bucks because I get PO'd. I mean, I just stop at 50 because, you know, I could fill my truck up for 40 bucks. Uh, not long ago, when I get to 50, I just stop. I mean, it makes me so mad to know that we, we took the bait. You know, the guy mean tweets. And he's a bit arrogant and, and you know, he's bombastic and we got to put an adult back in the White House. Who knew that they were voting for a dunce? I mean, I did. I knew you were voting for a dunce who had no idea how to manage the country's affairs. Uh, but you did it anyway. So here we are. Goody, 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Breeze. Morning, Breeze. You know, I guess what you need to do is you need to deal Beg forgiveness and admit you're a racist and then vote Democrat and all will be forgiven. And that's kind of, and so I would argue that the Democrat Party has done far more to promote racism on purpose than the Republican Party ever has. Now, I will say this the Republican Party is, the politicians are as guilty of promoting racism as anyone. I mean, I know you'd hear people say, man, we got to vote for this guy. Or you may have this crazy black guy might might get voted, or this, that, and the other, and that's perpetuated by the politicians. And then you got Joe Biden. You know, to a white person sitting there, they see Joe Biden going to Buffalo because some black people were murdered, and he should go. But should he also go to Minnesota, where white people were murdered by an African American racist? So you know, we got to admit racism exists on both sides. And we need to condemn it on both sides. You can't just blame everything on one side. So that being said, while we're doing this, you just nailed it, kid. While we're fighting over racism and who's a racist and who's not a racist, but we ought to be, like you said yesterday, focusing more on mental health. Because nobody can tell me that the black dude that drove the truck through and killed all the white folks at the parade didn't have a mental issue. And nobody can tell me that this this dumb kid isn't that crap crazy. So we got a middle issue as much as anything. But while we're debating this, gas is four fifty a gallon. It's thirty dollars for a daggone pound of ribeye. Milk's going up. Egg, everything else, while the, while the whole ship is sinking, we're talking about things like racism. We're talking about Elon Musk and Twitter, this, that, and the other. And we got politicians talking about everything but them doing something about the problem. 
So, you know, again, another great diversion. And I'll double down on what I said yesterday. People need to be tried for murder in China and America for all the people that were killed for COVID. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. You know, COVID, I want to go there for a second. I've said it probably more this week or last week than I've said it. And we kind of left COVID for a while out of sight, out of mind. Uh, we appear to be kind of ending, you know, whatever it is the government decided to do. There's an interesting article in the National Review, excuse me, in the um, in the American Conservative by Pete Van Buren. Uh, he's a good writer, and he's a very level-headed writer. Um, I read something he wrote yesterday, and I actually printed it and got it written up and marked up, you know, the way I uh, – he didn't write it well enough, so I changed some of the uh, some of the language. But, but I want to read his paragraph, and I want to give him all the credit of the world. I'm going to read it verbatim. Um, and once again, probably one of the most level-headed conservative commentators in America today, uh, Pete Van Buren. Uh, we were swindled, fooled, bamboozled, and lied to during the pandemic. The public health establishment misled the American people about the value of mask, about masking, closures, and social distancing. No one has accepted blame. Understanding how badly we failed is not only an inevitable part of the told you so process, but more importantly, a lesson for next time. Just ask the Swedes. Remember we talked about Sweden in the early days of the uh, the pandemic, the fact that Sweden didn't close down, they didn't shut down. They made yep. some some decisions. Um, they stopped letting groups of more than 500 gather. I mean, imagine that, a group of more than 500 uh, gathered. They didn't close schools. They didn't close restaurants. Um, th- there was a period of time where the hospitals got real uh, kind of anxious. That there, there was a, a pretty serious increase in, uh, in patients, and I think th- that they began doing some things in moderation. But, but Sweden, what was the example of, and I think the prime minister of Sweden, or might have been the minister of their, um, their, their public health experts, so to speak, when he said, you know, we're not going to command. We're, we're going to basically um, encourage people to do certain things that we believe uh, make sense. But they never, ever, they never initiated nationwide lockdowns or mask mandates or or shutdowns or all these other um, things that, in, in retrospect, were, were not just devastating the economy. They've led to a baby feud shortage. They've led to a fuel shortage. Forget the, the Putin price hike. I mean, this is a this is rest and residue of the pandemic and how we upset the normalities of an economy in, in such a way that led to uh, inflation, rampant inflation. Um, you know, we, I said the other day, and I think, uh, you know, I'm not an economist, but macroeconomic stimulus always leads to inflationary pressures, which always makes you poor. I mean, that's the nature of macroeconomic stimulus. You don't have to go to Wharton or Darden or Harvard or Stanford, you know, to know some of those realities. You kind of learn those plundering around in the real world. But, but you know, Pete Van Buren, we were swindled, we were fooled, we were bamboozled, and we were lied to. The, the public health establishment in America so terribly misled the American people about what masking was going to do, what closures were going to accomplish, social distancing was all the rage and craze. And, and here's the travesty in all of this. Most of you believed it. I mean, that's the, that's the part that makes me nervous. Um, the fact that Fauci wanted to be Napoleon for a day or two or three, uh, that didn't surprise me. 
Um, and now he's threatening that if Trump gets reelected, he will not serve at the pleasure. <laughs> he doesn't know this, but he's helping Trump. More people are probably inclined to vote for Trump today. That's funny. He said he's not going to do something that he hasn't been asked to do. Yeah. You know, when you Joe serve Scarborough. The, that's right. the Scarborough exactly. syndrome. You know, Scarborough writes an op-ed, I'm leaving the Republican Party, despite nobody asking Joe Scarborough <laughs> if he was leaving or staying in the Republican Party. There, there's a degree of self-importance there that, that is um, it's very telling. But, but when you look at... Um, uh, the, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a pretty extensive um, analysis, kind of a uh, postmortem on what we did, what we should have done, and they basically landed on one category that they believe is, is paramount to all the others, and that is excess mortality. How many more people died uh, in, in 2020 and 2021 that wouldn't have died? How many, how many lives were lost excessively? How many uh, years of life were squelched out? And they did about as um as revealing an expose or analysis as you can possibly do. It's not perfect, but it's very telling, and um, it's so intriguing to read this data. Um, it looks like, and and Van Buren says this in his um in his uh, article in the American Conservative, Sweden had roughly zero excess deaths associated with COVID nineteen. In other words, the, the people in the number of people who died in Sweden and the age they died would have died in a normal year without having um, COVID. The U.S. had the, had the most excess deaths of all uh, developed nations. New York had more than Florida. So that sums it up right there. I mean, who had the more egregious standards and, and strict restrictions and, uh, you know, lockdowns and shutdowns and the restaurants can't open? Um, it was the, it was, Rev, I'm telling you. It was the epic failure of our time. It was the, the biggest disaster. I don't want to say in the history of our country because we've had some, some disasters here, but when you look at what we did to this economy and why we did it and based on what pretense, it was an unbelievable and tragic mistake that, that our governmental leaders um, you know, were trusted and trusted the, the public health sector. But more than anything, Gallup has a poll out today that says 43% of Americans believe we should still wear a mask on an airplane. So nearly half of Americans have been convinced by the, the hoodwinking of the, the public health experts and the American political class into believing that they really saved your life. They protected you. Guys, they destroyed our economy. We can't find baby formula. Gas is on the way to $5 a gallon. It's not all about COVID, but damn it, it's a lot to do with COVID. When you allow that much macroeconomic stimulus to make its way in liquidity into the economy and you constrict, restrict, almost um, shut down the production capacity and the distribution capacity of the American economy, it's inevitable where you end up. And I'll say it again. It is the, I didn't say A, it is the epic failure of modern American politics. And we were gullible enough and trusting enough and ill-informed enough to allow it to go on unchecked for about two years. We allowed a guy like Fauci to stand behind a podium and tell us what we need to do. And nobody or very few people in America challenged his perspective. It is a absolute disaster what we did, and we're resting, or excuse me, we're dealing and wrestling with the consequences of those decisions in May of 2022. Take a break. We'll be back 
in just a minute. You know, it has been a long time. It makes me feel good. I mean, I hate to be I told you so guy because a lot of you are with me. I mean, a lot of us question uh, some of these measures together. But when you go back and study the data, and, and we finally get to a point now, i got a couple of years under our belt of excessive deaths, and that's what the Kaiser Family Foundation um, but basically said it was the, um, I don't know, the metric most important. And when you look at the excess mortality in 2019, excuse me, in 2020 and 21, and they actually do it per 1,000 uh, age group or for, per 1,000 people in a, um, an age group, the United States had about 1,247 excess deaths um, in people over the age of 75. Sweden had about four. And when you get ages 0 and 14, um, I'll give you an example, Rev. In a normal year, historical averages, um, five fewer 0 to 14-year-olds died. Uh, and I'm talking about per 100,000. you got millions of, of kids 0 to 14 years old in America and all over the world for that matter, but you got U.S., Belgium, U.K., Switzerland, Australia, Netherlands, and France, Canada, Sweden. Uh, they, they segregate into ages 0 to 14, 15 to 64, 65 to 74, and then 75 plus. And the U.S. has, um, as it relates to excess mortality per 100,000 people, um, in about every age group, we lead the way. I mean, all the things we did. So Fauci was a failure. The CDC was a failure. The federal government was a failure. Um, state governments that mandated certain provisions be, be followed were a failure because the Kaiser Family Foundation says we didn't save any lives. I mean, some of these, um, but because in a normal year, this many people die who are 0 to 14. This many people die who are 15 to 64, 65 to 74. We had 58 more uh, people 15 to 64, that's a big age grouping, but 15 to 64 per 100,000 people, um, Belgium had six, uh, Switzerland had zero, Sweden had zero, um, ages 65 to 74, we had 420 more people die per 100,000 people, Belgium had 255, the UK had 172. Now, a lot of this has obesity rate written all over it. Uh, the European obesity uh, percentage is about 24 25%. The American obesity percentage is 42%. So we have a much higher uh, percentage of our citizens who are obese. And the only two risk categories that matter, I mean, in the macro, once again, you can dig into the detail and weeds and you can find, you know, kind of a one-off or a nuance. But the only risk categories that really matter as we do some of this postmortem is obesity and age. I mean, we, we can talk about people with preconditions. We can talk about uh, emphysema. We can talk about diabetes. We can talk about all these other sorts of, um, uh, I don't know, groupings. But, but at the end of the day, per the Kaiser Family Foundation, the, the only two risk categories that really mattered to a degree that's measurable is obesity and age. And, and once again, the article in the American Conservative, and this guy's not a, um, he's not a right winger by any stretch. Peter Van Buren is a very respected and, and kind of a mild-mannered, I mean, highly critical of Trump. I mean, I've read some things he's written on the American Conservative where he's highly cr uh, critical of Trump and his kind of his bombastic personality and attitude. But he basically, I mean, he comes out swinging when he says, we were swindled, fooled, bamboozled, and lied to during the pandemic, the public health establishment misled the American people about the value of masking, 
closures and social distancing. And he refers you to the Kaiser Family Foundation, and it really breaks it down to excess mortality per 100,000 people. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it delves into specifics. I mean, it really gets into the weeds when it comes to, um, to what we have. We'll get back to that in just a couple of minutes. But we're beginning to get some data, groupings of data now that allow us to do um, uh, some somewhat subjective postmortems on what worked, what didn't work. Um, I'm telling you, Sweden significantly outperformed America when it comes to excessive deaths per 100,000 um, Swedes versus Americans. Um, speaking of America, we have elections in America uh, today. Pennsylvania and North Carolina are the two I'm most interested in. Fox News Radio's Tanya J. Powers is in New York City. She's with us this morning. Good morning, Tanya. How are you? Good morning. Good. Yeah, there's five states that are having primaries today. Idaho, Kentucky, of course, uh, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina, as you mentioned. A lot of buzz about the Pennsylvania and North Carolina races, specifically uh, the the GOP uh, primary there in Pennsylvania that's getting a, a lot of buzzing of him at Oz, who is backed by former President Trump. He is running against uh, a, a few people. The the biggest names from that group besides him are the are hedge fund former hedge fund CEO David McCormick and Kathy Barnett. Now McCormick and Oz have spent a lot of money on this race, a whole lot of money on a lot of TV ads. Millions and millions. Uh, Barnett spent like a fraction of what they have spent, but he, she has kind of you know had a surge in the final stretch of the campaign, uh, helped along by a recent debate where she took on Dr. Oz. If you if you think about the candidates as far as their political leanings, you've got Oz and McCormick to the right, and you've got Barnett to the far right. I think Steve Bannon even called her ultra MAGA. So that kind of gives you an idea of of you know, the choices facing voters today in that primary. Tanya, what kind of odds could we have gotten in Las Vegas if 10 years ago we just said, I want to plop down 100 bucks on former President Donald Trump endorsing Dr. Oz in a Republican primary for the Pennsylvania Senate seat? I mean, it's, I mean, Trump is still the 800-pound gorilla in primary circles, may not be as effective in the general elections, and we'll find out today how effective he is in Pennsylvania but um, but it's just it's just a very odd time. I mean, I'm a former Republican office holder, and there was a predictability about the base. There, there was a certain way you conducted business, and I think that norm has been obliterated. And we're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work moving forward. It has been obliterated. You're exactly right about that. Um, you know, and, and I do think that would have been a weird bet to have had on the book. <laughs> Uh, especially when you when you when you talk about the fact that both of them would have been in a Republican situation. <laughs> I, mean, I think ten years ago, anybody would have gone, "No, that's not right. That's yep. got to be a typo. This is definitely not what's happening in 2022." But alas, here's we are. And, and you make a good point about the the you know the Republican part of this and how the um, kind of the norm of conservatism has definitely split from what we're seeing from Republican challengers, especially. I mean, you look back at the, at the primary in Indiana um, and in the, even in Ohio to some extent. I mean, it, it has been kind of a, a through line through this whole thing that I don't think we're going to lose anytime soon, which is, are we going to choose candidates? You know, I'm, and I'm speaking as a voter. Like, if you're a voter are you, and you're voting in a Republican primary, are you going to choose a candidate that is, you know, a, a more mainstream conservative candidate or are you going to choose one that's going to push the party further to the right? And that's that's the blanket of what we're seeing here is candidates that are challenging other Republicans for not being Republican enough. 
Well said. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate your time. Have a great day. Thank you. You know, Tanya uh, kind of parrots the the company's media, the the media's company line when she says, you know, further and further to the right. This is not a right-left issue. I'm sorry. I mean, the, the Democrats are lurching to the left. I mean, socialism is to the left of what I'll call, I mean, obviously it's to the left of neoclassical liberalism, but even contemporary liberalism. Socialism is to the left of that. Um, Communism is a little further to the left of that. When you get to the Republican side, are we going um, right? We're going north. We're going south. We're going, I mean, it's, it's hard to understand with clarity exactly where the party is headed, but, but it's not, it, it's not intellectual conservatism. That's not driving very much of this debate. It's, um, I was thinking about Oz. If the, the reason Oz has made a compelling case in, in Pennsylvania, I mean, obviously name ID and, and money. I mean, he's got some money and he's got a lot of name ID. So that makes him legitimate when, when he comes, uh, when he files on day one, a guy with that much name ID and, and has that much personal uh, wealth. I mean, he, he's legitimate on day one. He is a legitimate contender for that Senate seat. Now, historically, uh, conservatives would have laughed him out of town because he's not a conservative. But here's what Oz has convinced the voters in Pennsylvania of. He will always put America first. I mean, I've heard him say that a hundred times. He's on Hannity's show. He's on Fox News. He's on CNN. He's on you know NBC News. Whenever you hear Oz speak, um, he's always talking about, I- I'm tough enough to stand against the establishment, and I'll always put America first. That's not conservative. It's just simply not. I mean, it's very nationalist. It's, it's very, um, you know, the, the right, the Mitch McConnells of the world would argue it borders on isolationism. You know, it's absolutely um, non-internationalist or non-globalist, but, but that's what Oz has done. And he's done it over and over and over again. And the way he's been effective against McCormick is McCormick is a bushy. I mean, McCormick's a good man. Uh, he's to be commended for his service to country, and he's highly educated. And all these things that, that historically have mattered in, in primaries, will he put America first or not? And, and Oz has convinced the voters in Pennsylvania to some degree. We'll find out to what degree by, what, 8 o'clock tonight when the polls close. But, but he's convinced the voters in Pennsylvania that this guy's relationship to the establishment, the Bush family name in particular, just is globalist in nature. He's not going to put America first, guys. When he when he has a chance to spend forty billion dollars in America on our southern border, or, or you know try to engage even at a greater level in Ukraine with the Russian war, that's what this guy's going to do. And I won't. And that is that's not a right left issue. It's simply not. Once again, I think the Democrats and their fundamental issue is. I mean, it is left. How far left are we trying to go? Um, how far left can we go and maintain the support of the small but but very intense group of supporters and not lose some of the middle? And I think they they find out they found out the hard way that if you go that far left, you lose the middle. And the Democrats have lost the middle. Uh, the middle, in, in my opinion, in Pennsylvania, be the American working class that have historically voted in favor of Democrats, not monolithically, but by and large, the working class in Pennsylvania, the working class in Ohio have voted um, not overwhelmingly, but by slim margins in favor of the Democrats. The Democrats have gone so far to the left in the name of socialism and redistributionism and and collectivism that the working class don't want any part of that. 
But when the working class looks for somewhere other than uh, the Democrats to vote for, that they're not reading George Will. And that's why Oz has been so compelling, because he says over and over and over again, if I go to Washington, I'm going to always put the interests of the American people first. It's almost like, duh. I mean, how long did it take to figure out that worked? You know, with the American working class, the disenfranchisement, uh, the disenchantment, um, the disgust that a large share of the American public have with its elected leadership. Uh, It's almost like the answer was always right before your very eyes, and Trump comes along and in the most colorful way imaginable says it. We're going to build a wall. We're going to drain the swamp. I mean, imagine the, I mean, Trump could be charged with political illiteracy. Build a wall. Make America great again. Drain the swamp. I mean, th- those aren't complex, you know, focus group or oriented um, talking points. But how commonsensical are they? Keep it simple. It, it, keep it simple, stupid. And that's what the, the electorate believe today, that politics is being overcomplicated. It can't be that difficult. I mean, I understand governance. It's complex. I understand foreign affairs and domestic policy. I mean, I get the fact you can't let dummies do it, but it can't be that damn hard. I mean, everything that comes down the pike in Washington can't require a blue ribbon committee or a um, a team of experts, you know, and consultants and lobbyists and all these other sorts of things. And I think the beauty in America First is in its simplicity. I think it is a very simple political um, notion that the American public have kind of embraced. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, in a weird way, we said it on the show before, Bernie Sanders says things very similar to what Trump says, but he says it in a kind of kind of a socialist way. In other words, um, the working class have been taken advantage of, so let's use more and more government to confiscate from the haves and give to the have-nots. That still doesn't sell in the American working class. All the American working class want is a fair shake. And when you can't find baby formula, Gas is four fifty a gallon, and a bag of groceries is a hundred bucks. And they carry their family out on a Friday night. It used to be fifty bucks. Now it's eighty bucks. They just don't believe that's a fair shake. That they don't they don't sit down and characterize. Well, this is too liberal, and that's too conservative. And I wish this guy was more liberal, and this person was less uh, liberal, and this one over here was more conservative. No, they just know where the rubber hits the road. Government is not doing right on their behalf. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, one of the very interesting stories that we've not talked about today or yesterday is this Twitter um, revelation about uh, Elon Musk may be backing up or slowing down and acquiring Twitter. Um, I saw Sunday this information. There's a company called Spark Toro, S-P-A-R-K-T-O-R-O. Um, Spark Toro published the results, I think Sunday, Saturday or Sunday, uh, about investigating how many Twitter accounts are fake. And you wonder if Musk had hired this company to already do this information gathering. Um, they basically researched the activity of about 44,000 accounts over a 90-day period um, based on their analysis. Once again, Spark Toro, based on their analysis, the number of accounts it identified as fake or spam is actually 19.42%. Now, Twitter has an SEC filings, um, and they have a fiduciary responsibility to be honest about that filing. Uh, it's got to be legit, so to speak. But they say between 4 and 
is the percentage of fake or what they call bot accounts, spam accounts, fake accounts, bot accounts. Um, SparkToro provided Musk this information, and Musk is now basically saying, I may still buy Twitter, but if the number is 19.42% and not 5%, then it's a lot less valuable. He wants a better deal. Well, I mean, and he's going to have to get a better deal. Here, here's what will happen. I mean, if Twitter says that we stand by our numbers, we stand by the 4 to 5% that are fake or spam, um, somebody's going to sue, and the SEC will do an investigation. And someone like SparkToro, may not be SparkToro, but somebody like SparkToro will be hired to do a full-fledged investigation. And, I mean, you're talking about shareholder fraud. You're, you're talking about a lot of problems, a lot of legal problems come down the pike toward Twitter if indeed they were intentionally misrepresenting, uh, because the value of the company is based on uh, how many people are you users. advertising to? Sure, I mean how many users are really out there? So if you've got um, if you've got a hundred thousand users and five percent are you know fake, that's five thousand out of a hundred thousand, or is it twenty thousand? You know, you got one out of every five or one of every twenty. I mean that's a big difference, guys. Um, is the number five percent, which is one of every twenty, or is the number twenty percent? which is one of every five. So imagine Twitter having to expose or disclose that one of every five accounts is indeed um, illegitimate, fake or spam. Uh, Musk, to me, has them in a box. And I think he's got some data. I mean, I'm not saying he's good friends with um, the guy that owns SparkToro, but but th- they provided him with a kind of an analysis that I think he's referred to and, and their deep dive is pretty deep when you do 45,000 accounts over a 90-day period. And they came up with um, 19.42%, which is basically four times as high as the Twitter, um, not just claimed, disclosed on their SEC filings when they have to be, you know, once again, this fiduciary responsibility they have to their shareholders to say, you know, we made this much or that much or the profit was this much more or that much less. And I think it's part of their disclosure. Um, they've got trouble. I mean, if Musk really believes that the number is closer to 20% than 5%, I think he gets the deal of a lifetime. I think the $44 billion deal becomes a 25 or $30 billion deal. <laughs> wow. And um, and then maybe he generates or, or regenerates some of the following back into the millions and millions and millions is still the de facto digital town hall. I mean, I don't dispute that at all. But if one of every five, I mean, one of every 20 accounts being fake, okay, that's a lot, but that's not a deal breaker. But one of every five accounts being fake, that means if you get five tweets today, odds are one is make-believe um, as opposed to 20. That's, that's substantial. And I just think Musk now has Twitter and kind of kind of in a bind and will will they stick to their guns and say no the number we disclose in our sec filings is legit or will they say well you know it's hard to measure i mean it gets real complicated <laughs> we can't keep up with how many accounts are fake or spam um well spark toro uh it's kind of interesting google spark toro there, there's actually a website called bro bible uh b-r-o-b-i-b-l-e it's kind of the bible for tech junkies and uh, you know, kind of geeks and nerds, uh, you would like that because you keep up with that kind of stuff yeah. a lot more uh, proficiently than I do. But um, And they can explain it in ways that kind of make my head swim. I like the way Zero Hedge tweeted this morning and kind of just describes exactly what it is. 
Uh, Twitter's choice. Here's Twitter's choice. Admit Musk is right, and it has a huge fake underbase opening up existing management to countless shareholder lawsuits, or kill the deal and be sued for record shareholder value destruction. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Musk knew this going in, and I think he's going to get uh, in a better. Box. I think he's going to buy Twitter. I think he's going to buy it for significantly less than $44 billion. Take a break. Back in a minute. So does Musk go through and buy Twitter, Rev? I mean, do you think he does, or do you think he um, – because we got another side here, follower wonk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, so some of these tech geeks, um, they're saying that Musk has 93.4 million followers, but only 26.8 million active followers. And by active, they mean has tweeted, tweeted at least once in the past 90 days. Um, so so he has sparked. Toro and something wonk. Yeah, follower wonk. Okay. So you got Spark Toro and follower <laughs> wonk, and they've collaborated. And out of that comes, I mean, there was a day NBC News and the Wall Street Journal would collaborate. Now we got follower wonk <laughs> collaborating with Spark Toro, and um, and more people probably know about those two companies uh, than the New York Times, or excuse me, the Wall Street Journal or but NBC yeah, yeah, News. He buys it and he gets a better deal. But I mean, the, the, well, I mean, he's got them in a box. He does. I mean, either they're honest or they aren't. And if they're honest, they'll say, hey, we stand by our filing, take it or leave it. I just, I just for the life of me, I don't know how sincere they are in some of these disclosures they've made. And this company, uh, Spark Toro, <laughs> Take it for what it's worth. That's yeah, their name. Um, they're basically, and I mean, they've got, you know, uh, what percent of active Twitter accounts are spam or fake. I mean, they've got the analytics. They, they've got how they did, um, you know, how they did the uh, the research, uh, the software they used, uh, the conclusions they drew. Um, from May 13 through 15 in 2022, Spark Toro and Follower Wonk conducted a rigorous joint analysis of 44,058 public Twitter accounts Active in the last 90 days, these accounts were randomly selected by machine from a set of 130-plus million public active profiles. Our analysis found that 19.42%, nearly four times Twitter's Q4 2021 estimate and filing, fit a conservative definition of fake or, or fake or spam accounts. Details and methodology are provided in the full report below, and it's very extensive. I mean, I don't understand it. So some of the um, so some of the methodologies and formulas they use to get where they get, but they furnished, I think, this to Musk. I gotta believe they've spoken previously. I mean, you know, some of this is um has been collaborated or or worked together. Uh, oh, you but, know but, it. But but if you know, if if Twitter says take it or leave it, then somebody's going to file a lawsuit, and they're going to have to prove that indeed um their methodology is sound in concluding. That four right. to five percent are fake or spam. On or spam. No, no question about it. The advertiser universe. I mean, that's the value of the business. And if I'm advertising to, you know, uh, five people, that's one thing. If I'm advertising to four because one's a fake, that's another thing. And um, th- there's some studying to be done right. on this and phenomenon. Especially if you've represented that you're advertising to the five when you're actually, you know, 20% of your advertisers are not real. Yeah, if you're a private company, you can say what you'd like to say. You know, I'm the you know, there was a day we were the best trope body business in the history of mankind. But but if you declare yourself a public company and you have to disclose these yeah, things to shareholders, no question numbers. about it, certify those results, um, there has to be a uh, you know a rigorous process well, does this, of which they go through. Does this change your uh, attitude? Because you know, early on when Musk 
announced he was buying Twitter, you decided to tweet more. Yeah, your, your, your I've, I've, tweeted, I've tweeted about it every day. Uh, adios Facebook, hello, right. I'm Twitter, because the land of free speech is where I want to roam and express myself. Now, it doesn't change my opinion. Um, I'm interested to see how it works out. And well, now what I'm wondering is amongst my followers, how many are fake? How many are spam? Um, I don't have any idea. And I don't know how to go about finding out who's real and who's not. Um, I can imagine having millions and millions and millions of followers. So if he's got 26 million active followers, that's still a bunch. Now, do you do you know how to to, to try to grow your follower I don't, base? I don't do you have know any how to idea. Tell people to go there and like because your handle is at. K-A-R- what do you mean my handle? I, it's it's what, how people can find you on Twitter. At okay. K a r d s c. Right. If people type that in, they can follow you. And, and see what you're tweeting on the daily basis. See, I'm tweeting, but I don't know how to do any of the other right. uh, realities. So, so I, if you're listening and you are on Twitter and you want to follow Ken's personal Twitter, it's at K-A-R-D-S-C. Okay. You said that. I didn't. Yep. Is that right, Mike? I think Mike's kind of right. nodding his head. And, and and we have one, and the uh, the Live 95 station has one as well, okay. in Florence, at Live 95. Well, I, mean, I, I don't want to, Zuckerberg stole the election. I don't want to participate in his economy. <laughs> I mean, the guy that stole the election doesn't deserve my, uh, the, the quality of my tweets. That's right. The quality of my post on Facebook. That's right. Uh, if Musk is a kind of a free, a free speech advocate, that's the, um, he's not, that's the range I want to roam on, um, so to speak. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, Dr. Kaufman, why do you kind of jeer when I say Zuckerberg stole the election? <laughs> you, you've, have you seen 2000 mules yet? I have not seen 2000. What are you mules laughing at I... Bolt? <laughs> <laughs> No comment. So I, I got two professors jovially, uh, if that's a word, um, having jovial laughter amongst one another. Dr. Scott Coppin, history chair, Francis Marion University. Dr. Will Bolt, history professor at Francis Marion University. So you've not seen um, 2,000 Mules. I have not seen 2,000 Mules. Do you know what 2,000 Mules is? I know is? what it's about, yes. Okay. Um, why have you chosen to not um, – I mean, you know that you are a, a highly regarded and well-respected political pundit, Right. I mean, you're you're a, you're a history a professor. <laughs> I mean, no, you're you're a, you're a history professor on the side. Your, your primary occupation is now um, liberal political. That's what pundit. you're known for. In the so, yeah, correct. Right. To our listeners, that's what he's known as. He's known as that damn cop. I mean, that's what the majority of my friends call him. That damn copman. Yeah. You know, did you want that damn copman said yesterday on our show? Yep. Um, yep. So, so would you be willing to give two thousand mules? Um, a fair shake. I'd be willing to watch it. Yes, I just don't go to movies very often. And this, you can pay nineteen ninety nine and have it, you know, in, in the in the privacy of your own home. Download it to your device, and, and you can and see exactly right what Zuckerberg did. You can see why I fled uh, Facebook in preference to um. To, I, to, I can watch conspiracy theory. Sure. Yes. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair, fair enough. Hey, I thought of you, Doctor Bolt, when I when I saw the event Saturday in, in Buffalo. I mean, I don't know anybody that lives in Buffalo. You from originally from that area? Yeah. Um. You know, we'll find out in due time the motivation, some of the um, some of the realities. But but the the cold hard truth is, ten people are dead. Um, there seems to be uh, some degree of derangement and mental illness. Um, you know, we'll find out how much politics were involved in this. There's a there's a manifesto out there floating around somewhere. But as someone who grew up in Buffalo or very familiar with that city, it's got to be. I mean, it, it's home, oh, sure. and it's got to be devastating. All right. Usually, when Buffalo is in the news, it's because of bad weather, uh, a blizzard. You don't expect to see. But losing a Super Bowl. I didn't want to go there. Right? <laughs> Gut wrenching, soul crushing defeats by your sports teams. And so, when the the news broke, in the news was really just a it's a, a tops. Well, tops in Buffalo are like Piggly Wiggly, 
food lines down here. They're on every street corner. And your first thought was, well, mom and dad are probably go to a Tops every other day, if not every day. And as soon as they said Jefferson Avenue, once the location, it was pretty easy to kind of connect the dots and figure. Uh, this was an area that I used to work in. I worked for the Postal Service for many years. And so I had a, a route in that area. And I would go into that, that Tops because it was hey, Buffalo in the wintertime. You want to get warm? Buffalo in the summertime, it's hot. It's air-conditioned. Nature calls. You can, you can go to the bathroom and get a soda. Saturday afternoon was probably there many a times. And so there were certainly innocent people there just minding their own business. Uh, what 18-year-old has a 180-page manifesto? When I was 18-year-olds, my priorities were uh, video games and girls, and sadly in that order uh, for the most part. <laughs> so, I mean, yes, there's certainly something wrong. It looks like in retrospect there were some signs. The, the individual maybe slipped through the cracks. Maybe somebody would rather. Well, there's all sorts of laws about being a minor. Uh, but Buffalo is the city of good neighbors. And certainly it'll be a, a tough healing process. Uh, certainly our thoughts and prayers go out to everybody's there, but the, the city will come back stronger. And Dr. Kaufman, <clears throat> the president's going there today. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been a bit selective in where he chooses to go. I don't want to make this political, but I think by the president going there makes it political in nature. Um, he didn't go to Wisconsin when we had the terrible tragedy of the uh, the parade where the, um, the African-American driver of the car. I just think, and here's where, I mean, I'll let you kind of elaborate on your opinions here. But, but I just think we've gotten to a place where we politicize every single thing for gain, uh, whether it's one party or another. Th- this is political, that's not political. No, this is political, and that's not political. Whether it's a parade in Wisconsin or a supermarket in Buffalo, these are terrible human tragedies where innocent people needlessly lose their lives. You know, I thought that you might bring this up. I want to read something. Uh, I just want, I'll, I'll tell you where this comes from. This, this, this is from a presidential statement, a speech. There is no room for racism, anti-Semitism, or other forms of ethnic and racial hatred in this country. I know that you've been horrified, as have I, by the resurgence of some hate groups preaching bigotry and prejudice. That comes from Ronald Reagan's 1983 Evil Empire speech, in which he blasted the Soviet Union for its bigotry, its hatred, its its, um, atheism, and said that we cannot have that here in this country. Could we not argue that that in itself is politicizing those very issues? Um, to make a statement, whether it be a visit or a speech, I mean, we are politicizing them, but how else are we going to get the word out there and make it clear where we stand on these issues? But can it not be divisive? This is politics in America today. Have we reached a point, Dr. Coppin, I'll stay with you and to give Bolt a chance, have we reached a point in America today where we're rewarded for being politically divisive and we're penalized for being politically um, conducive to try and find some common ground, some better place? Um, I mean, I, you know, I had a text a second ago from a friend of mine who said, I don't know a single white person in my universe who would not have, if they had a gun, who would not have shot the guy to stop him from killing another Jewish person or African-American person. I got to believe that's the majority of us, whether we're black, white, Jewish, Christian, doesn't matter. We do share these similar values and views, but our politics have taken precedent over these humanistic emotions and interactions we have. And I think that's an unfortunate truth. Um, The word compromise has become an evil word. The idea of reaching across the aisle particularly in Congress, has become something that is frowned upon. 
And so we, we look for the sound bite. What, what sounds the most, I don't know, the thing that's going to get you on the news? The most Twitter uh, followers. Well, I mean, to some degree, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. But unfortunately, it's reaching the point of where, where conspiracy theory suddenly becomes reality, where, where hate speech becomes more acceptable. I mean, I've, I've been on here and I've said that I think that people like Donald Trump should be allowed to be on Twitter as long as they're not breaking the law. But I'll tell you, some of the things that I'm seeing coming out, I'm having trouble holding on to that. Replacement theory, for instance, which is apparently this individual in Buffalo believed in, I mean, that in itself lends itself to violence. And yet it's about what I think it was about 23 percent of Americans believe in that idea of replacement theory. I mean, good heavens, where are we going in this country when ideas like that are becoming accepted and and, and lead us down the path to, to events like what we just saw here? We've got to be able to find a way to get past these divisions to tamp down on the on the, the need for these sound bites, for these conspiracies, for for what's going to get you on the news and look for ways to reach across the aisle. Because if we don't, it's only going to get worse. But Dr. Bolt, division has become very lucrative sure in American boy. politics. I mean, <laughs> CNN does it, MSNBC does it, Fox yeah. News does it, talk radio does it, <laughs> um, dare we say. Um, divisiveness and division seems to turn heads and gain yeah. attention, which pays off in the in the marketplace. Right. Again, this is, uh, this is where we are, and we're sort of into this almost perpetual never-ending cycle <clears throat> of political gridlock. You just you can't get anything done in American politics. What are you going to do? Both sides privately want to blow up the filibuster. They want the other guy to do it. All right, they just don't want to be the one who is responsible. You're not you're not going to get the sixty votes in the Senate probably anytime soon either party. So you can get the majority. So then what? It becomes the courts, or suddenly you got to try and get your men and women into the court. And again, how does this how does this end? I mean, you're just we're we're at per, sustained cycle of just not being able to get anything done and as both you and dr kaufman have pointed out right it's it's it hurts you politically to be seen with somebody from the other party or to sponsor or co-sponsor legislation from the other side to try and be bipartisan now democrats are running further and further to the left that's the smart thing they got to do republicans i can't get outflanked on the right i've got to be more in more conservative for generations, we always said, oh, the center holds, and this is a new era in American politics right now where it doesn't hold. But, but Dr. Koppman, surely you don't blame Tucker Carlson or talk radio for what happened in Buffalo Saturday. It's hard for me. I'll tell you, it's becoming harder and harder for me not to. Um, when I hear statements like that, I mean, replacement theory is in itself, it's racist, it's bigotry, it's bigoted, it's anti-Semitic. I mean, we're already seeing an increase, for instance, in anti-Semitic incidents in this country. We saw a record in 2020. We saw another record in 2021. And people are buying into it. People are listening. Um, I, I, I do still believe very strongly that ultimately it does come down to individual responsibility, that we have to say, okay, I just heard about this replacement theory. Let me look more into this. See, see what the see what really is going on here. Look deeper. The problem is many of us aren't prepared to do that, and so it allows that kind of speech then to become accepted. And so 
yes, ultimately comes individual responsibility, but there also, I think, has to be responsibility from those individuals who are perpetuating those kinds of, of conspiracy theories. Um, but unfortunately, as you pointed out, you have people like Tucker Carlson. I mean, he brings a lot of dollars into Fox News. Uh, he got advertisers are advertising on his show. They're doing it for a reason. Um, it's become lucrative. And, and unfortunately, it is leading us down. It is contributing to to this these divisions that are taking place. Well, hold on to that for a second. Let's take a break, Mike. I want to come back in just a second, continue. I don't want to change subjects. I want to keep going down, down this road. There's a lot of um, discussion to be had on this issue. Back in a minute. 843 I want to continue this conversation. Dr. Scott Kaufman, Dr. Will Bolt, both in the studio with us. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Bill in Florence. Hello, Bill. Hey, good morning. Morning. I'm just curious, with this division, with racism and stuff, why does the media promote this for? You know, if something happens from a cop, does something to a black person, they specify black man, black person, whatever. But if a white person gets killed by a cop or something bad happens from a cop, they don't specify the color. Why? Did, to me, that's a promotion. If you listen solely to the media, never in history has a white man ever been done wrong by a cop or a black person. They just specify black person got done wrong. It's wrong in either way it goes, but why did they promote it for? Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. And that's where I wanted to go here for a second. Um, I'm going to uh, I'm going to rant for just a second. Or not rant. I'm going to opine for just a second. Um, I don't disagree that a lot of the divisiveness has come as a result of conservative media. I mean, I don't dispute that. I, I don't deny that Fox gins up some of this um talk radio has been highly effective at ginning up a lot of that but 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 dr coppin and i'll start with you here for a second i believe the ultimate success of fox and talk radio has been because the media has been so derelict in their obligations to report accurately and fairly uh you know what's happening out there the caller just said you know one story is reported one way another story is reported another way i think talk radio would fall on its face and cease to exist if traditional and historic media, legacy media is what I refer to as, kind of had a revelation and an awakening and said, hey, we have been far too liberal. We have been far too biased in our reporting. We're going to go back to, um, you, you know, objective reporting and fair and balanced reporting. Um, but I think when when consumers of news, when, when politically opinionated consumers of news began to feel blocked out, of the, of the debate. In other words, NBC News had a talking point, and ABC News and, and CBS News and academia. I mean, I'll lump academia in there together, became so monolithic in, in its view of the world and what it was trying to convince people the view of the world was. That's when Rush Limbaugh made his mark. That's when Fox News and, and Roger Ailes made their mark. And I think there was a, uh, a population of people out there who felt like, I'm not getting both sides of the story and then Limbaugh and, and Fox News and talk radio became highly effective as voices of people who don't feel like or didn't feel like their pleas were being heard or their views of the world were being respected. I mean, I can see with the media where, I mean, I, I would take issue with you on academia. I okay. do think we still do a very good job of, of, of doing our best to present both, both sides of the, of the coin. Um, with regard to the media, I, I mean— I would like to say that the media is straight down the middle, the mainstream media, but 
I freely admit I'm seeing more and more of of CNN, MSNBC heading in one direction, and then of course we have Fox in the other direction. And there's a reason why Fox is, is popular because it does provide that other voice that many people felt like was missing. Um, the, the problem I'm having is that we, we want to be, we want to be, it's preaching to the choir. We want to hear that point of view, which, which agrees with what we affirmation. believe. Affirmation. We exactly. all look for affirmation. Exactly. And so I'll put, if I believe what Fox News tells me, I'm going to watch Fox and forget about even thinking about watching CNN, watching MSNBC, listening to NBC News. Um, we have to be willing to lo- look at both sides. I mean, I've said many times, there's a reason why I come on this show. I know a lot of your listeners disagree with what I have to say, and they have every right to dis- disagree with me. But I come on this show because I believe that our founding fathers believed this was a nation based upon the idea that there are multiple points of view. And it is our, it is our job as citizens to be as well-informed as we possibly can, which means listening to those differing points of view. Once we take the position that we just want affirmation for what we believe and are willing to listen to the other side, then we're heading down a path that's really dangerous. And Dr. Bolt, but but to that point, I mean, he, he makes a, I mean, I love the way he articulates that because I think he sincerely believes that and I believe it as well. But but to me, traditional and what I'd call legacy media left folks like me no choice. Sure. I had to find somewhere to, to, to almost to convince myself I was not crazy. I've told I've told this story before. When I first became a little bit interested in politics, I mean, I didn't vote, but I I came, you know, somewhat of a business owner because my father owned a business, and I heard him deal with the political realities. Um, There was a radio in our building, and it played Rush Limbaugh. And Limbaugh (laughs) was the only voice I heard that was consistent with the way I saw the world, the way my father had conditioned me or or convinced me to believe it was the way. Uh, what What I'm arguing is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, NBC, ABC, CBS, they don't know it, but they created Fox News. They created Rush Limbaugh. No, you you, you stole my thunder. You sort of, for generations post-New Deal, maybe to the mid-90s, you, the country was a, a center-left nation. And so those on the right didn't have a voice. Dan Rather at CBS, and you said, of course, the, the old gray lady at the New York Times, the Washington Post, who in the 1970s under Brett and Ben Bradley had a vendetta, was personally out to get Richard Nixon. In the end, it the end justified the means they got him. But lots of other newspapers like what what's this obsession with going after a Republican president? Walter Cronkite, you can kind of go back as a, a a big lover of the Kennedys. So again, for for a generation, those Americans who were leaning to the right or more conservative, who who, who speaks for me? And so certainly, when you have someone like a Rush Limbaugh, who kind of started off in the backwoods, in the wilds of nowhere, and then eventually kind of gained some traction and became. Uh, the the dominant figure on conservative and has spawned so so much since then. But anyway, it was the fact that just nobody else was catering or would give a right leaning individual a conservative any fair time. Would you agree, Doctor Kaufman, that the the intrigue of Trump was his willingness to do battle? In other words, the 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 political right felt like it had endorsed, embraced, voted for the Mitch McConnells of the world, the George Bushes of the world. Uh, the Mitt Romneys of the world, but but nobody had that fighting spirit. And a lot of people on the right believed that the game was so unfairly disproportional that somebody had to be willing to turn it into a street fight, and that was the intrigue with Donald Trump. I think that's part of it, and the way he the way he was willing to fight. I mean, he, he said what he wanted to say, and he didn't care how it came out. Unapologetically. Exactly. 
But I think it's it's more than that also. It, it, there was a growing anger with the establishment in general, a belief that those people in Washington weren't listening to to their constituents, and the fact that Donald Trump was an outsider uh, who said, look, I'm not tainted by the, by the Beltway. I'm not tainted by Washington, D.C. I'm going to bring these new ideas. I understand how this country works. I'm a business person. I understand how business functions. And if you want someone who's going to fight for you is not tainted by the establishment and is going to say what he believes and does what he believes is right, then elect me. And that message resonated. Let's stay with Trump for one second. Got about three or four minutes here. Um, Donald Trump has endorsed Dr. Oz. Let me say that again. Um, (laughs) Former former American president Donald Trump has endorsed Dr. Oz in the Senate primary the Republican primary, mind you. I know that sounds like a fairy tale 10 years ago, but that's where we are today. Pennsylvania, I argue to Dr. Bold and Dr. Kaufman, is the most reflective of America in general. I mean, if there's a microcosm of America, it's Pennsylvania. I mean, it's got a lot of different demographics. It's got um, it's got working class. It's got wealthy people. It's got urban. It's got rural. Um, to, to me, it's kind of an embodiment of America, but you can't you can't lump America into one state. But if you could, Pennsylvania would be one of the states that I think need to be considered. Um, what do you make of Dr. Oz being somewhat of the front runner in this Republican primary in Pennsylvania? Uh, it's amazing. Um, I mean, here we have an individual who, in many respects, uh, has has taken positions that are pro-Democrat, uh, that are quite liberal. Um, but yet also takes this America first position that Trump likes a lot. He is a TV personality and he's been endorsed by Trump. Uh, one of the things I find most interesting about this race is the MAGA movement seems to be split, uh, between Oz and Kathy Barnett, uh, with those people supporting Barnett, believing that, uh, she's the true MAGA, the true symbol of MAGA. So we'll have to see what ends up happening there. What, what do you predict? I had to put you on the spot, but I mean, what do you think happens? So you can even call McCormick's name. And, and McCormick yeah. graduated from West Point, uh-huh. got a doctorate from Princeton, um, so got a purple star, worked for Bush, worked on Wall Street. I mean, those are the qualities and characteristics Republican historically looked for in a candidate. And and I think he finishes uh, maybe third, probably second. But to your point, um, the, the America First movement has overwhelmed the traditional orthodoxies of Republican lore. And it shows the power of Donald Trump within the Republican Party. Uh, Oz will probably win, but I would keep an eye on this Kathy Barnett. I mean, she's making a uh, – She's in recent days, she's been making a real move toward the front. On a shoestring budget, mind you. True, yes. Uh, about what do you make of it? Well, you talked about Trump being a fighter, and that just reminds me of another president, Andrew Jackson, had a reputation. <laughs> yeah. as he shot a, people. But, right? Exactly, right. He took it to I the – I mean, uh, literally, I'm not joking. I mean, Andrew Jackson shot I, people. He fought duels with shotguns at 10 paces. That's, that's a man's <laughs> man right there. But – we're talking about Pennsylvania as the bellwether. Why are we talking about Pennsylvania? Ten years ago, we would say, no, no, Ohio. Ohio is sort of the gold standard. And why are we not talking about, why is it shifted to Ohio's neighbor? Republicans have taken control, or, or the Democrats have so messed things up in Ohio. And Trump won it by eight points both times. And so now, again, Pennsylvania has become sort of sort of ground zero. And it looks like it's, it's Oz's race to lose. And what we said ten years ago, You'd have bet the farm on this McCormick guy. He checks off all of the boxes. This is the gold standard. He'd be the perfect Republican candidate 10, 15 years ago. And now he might even get clipped, might finish third. Do you, in the do end. you concur with your esteemed colleague? We got that. You know, I think you guys, uh, per contract, we have to call them esteemed at least one time <laughs> per show. So do you concur with your esteemed colleague that this is all about Trump? 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, you cannot deny it. Yes. And again, when you when historians sort of like go back, they could almost say that no matter what he does, even if he just rides off into the sunset, this is the age of Trump. You know, there's there's no way around that. That's he, very interesting. He casts long shadows, and we'll we'll see that up close and personal in a month uh, when we have a seventh congressional district Republican primary here in South Carolina. Have a call. Let's go to the call. Then we'll um, let these guys get back to work. Jim in Florence. Hello, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, if I could get the professor's opinion real quick on on the reporting released by Project Veritas last night about from a Twitter employee um, admitting that Twitter. Uh, routinely censored right-leaning users because the left-leaning users were overwhelmingly more more likely to throw a hissy fit about uh, uh, opposing viewpoints, particularly from the right, um, and admitting that right-leaning users did not complain about um, opposing viewpoints. Um, So it obviously shows that um, left-wing users of Twitter are the ones that can't stand hearing something other than what they believe. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Well, I'll go on the record. Twitter and social media in general have historically censored those on the right. I I, I have not seen the report, but I'll, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think that if you're going to have these kinds of, of forums, you got to allow for free speech. And it does mean allowing for liberal and conservative viewpoints. As long as you're not breaking the law, then you should be allowed to, to state that point of view. But I am also going to say here that there are increasingly things I'm seeing that do concern me. Um, that said, if you don't like what somebody's saying because they happen to have a conservative viewpoint, then I think you're just as bad as the person who who is a conservative and says, I don't like what you're saying because you have a liberal viewpoint. We have to be willing to listen to both sides. Not about last word. Yeah, this isn't the first time we've heard reports like this and so uh where there's smoke there's usually fire but well explained thank you sir <laughs> thank you thanks to both of you we'll take a break we'll be back in just a few moments Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number let's go to the phone someone's there pat in florence good morning you're on the air good morning everybody how you doing good morning uh the professor was talking about um things scaring him like replacement theory and all of that but there's other things that uh, scare the other side too critical critical race theory is a real thing and it's scary when it's told in our schools and then things that joe biden says um he's dividing us also when he says the MAGA crowd is the most extreme political group in u.s history uh he's talking about uh half of the united states i do believe uh, when he says the MAGA crowd could target LGBTQ and children next, I don't know exactly what he means by that. When he says taxing the wealthy corporations could help bring down inflation, what in the world kind of statement is that? Uh, he said when he took office, there was no vaccine available. But there is a picture of him taking the vaccine on January, on uh, December 21st, I do believe. He uh, created this misinformation board when he found out that uh, – that uh, Elon Musk was going to buy Twitter, and when the laptop story looks like it's real, he decided he would uh, create that misinformation board. Anyway, one more thing. If Liar Liar Pants on Fire was a real thing, I'd watch CNN and The View every damn day. Y'all have a good day. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. You know, I've said this before, and I guess now would be a, an appropriate time. I think the reason we've gotten to this place of deep, deep division is there's another voice out there. And I credit Rush Limbaugh. I really believe that he changed the world. Now, people will say, yeah, but look where we are now. Look how deeply divided we are now. Well, we're hearing both sides of the story. 
And and people don't wake up every day desiring to be angry at somebody else. I just don't buy that. I'll go back to Governor Haley. When, when, when Trump ran for president and he was coming to South Carolina and Governor Haley had endorsed Marco Rubio and she said, you know, to the voters of South Carolina, don't give in to the loudest sirens of anger. And I remember thinking to myself, because uh, the state newspaper called me and, and said me uh, or asked me, uh, what do you think of Donald Trump winning South Carolina? I mean, this is before the primary. And I said, he's going to win South Carolina and it's not anger. I mean, if people are angry and you're an elected official, the, the obligation you have, the responsibility uh, you should uphold is to find out why they're angry. And I think a lot of people on the political right felt like they didn't have an outlet. They didn't have a um, anywhere to vent, to, to, to hear someone say things uh, that they understood, to, to, to express themselves in a fashion or form that was consistent with the way they saw the world. And I, and I think Limbaugh deserves enormous credit for that. And I know he'll go down as history as a very questionable and controversial figure. But I think the most important thing Rush Limbaugh did was convince our side. And, and guys, it is two sides. I mean, you've got a liberal side that want to endorse and embrace and enact a liberal agenda. You've got a conservative side that wants to stop that from happening and, you know, kind of embrace, endorse, and uh, project uh, conservatism uh, as the governing norm of America. But, but Limbaugh normalized a lot of the way we see the world. And if you watch the, the ABC Evening News or the CBS Evening News or the, or the NBC Evening News, or you read the New York Times, or you read uh, the Washington Post, or you read the state newspaper, Post and Courier, you felt like an outcast. You felt like an outlier. Why, why does nobody feel the way I feel about these issues? And I think one day we all grew up and we realized how liberal the media had become, how monolithic it had become, and I'll disagree with Scott here. I do think academia is equally liberal, but I think academia is as monolithic as the media is, and all of a sudden Limbaugh comes along and people find kind of a safe haven. They, they find a place they can go hear things uh, very articulately said, and, and it confirms or affirms the way they think the world should work. And I go back to, to my youth, and uh, I say my youth, my younger days, and hearing Limbaugh being played on the radio in a metal building in a town with no stoplight, and he normalized a lot of my sensibilities. I, I didn't feel odd, but because if I watched Dan Rather, um, I was like, damn, nobody feels like I do. I mean, there's nobody right. out there in prominence that feels the way I do. Um, they endorsed liberalism. They cheered for liberalism. Uh, and, and then they began uh, c- kind of commanding the debate. You know, we're not going to have it, and it's where we are today. I think the biggest problem with media today is the disallowance of a fair debate. I mean, let's hear both sides of the story. Uh, let's hear liberalism explained and enacted and, and how it's going to make life better for Americans. How's more going to, to more effectively govern our nation's affairs? And then let's hear conservatism or, or America first or, or socialism. You know, but, but we got to a place where not only were your opinions not respected, they weren't even allowed. And, and as Obama, basically, I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. When Barack Obama got elected, I stopped feeling like political opposition and felt like the mortal enemy. I mean, he had declared war on people who see the world as I do, who sense politics in a fashion that I did. And that was offensive, deeply offensive. Roger Ailes and, and, um, and Rush Limbaugh figured out a way to monetize and capture some of that raw emotion. Is Ailes divisive? Yeah necessarily yeah was limbaugh divisive yeah 
necessarily? Yeah. You can't acquiesce. You can't just write letters and hope people come around one day. Was Trump to the divisive? Way. Sure. Necessarily? Sure. No doubt about it. The the absolute. I mean, he was a he was the most necessary president that this country has had since I've been on planet Earth, and that's nineteen sixty three. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We got time for a call. Uh, about thirty seconds. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break. Yeah. I mean, I know we're asking our callers to hold on, but we've got these obligations and responsibilities that we have to take care of. So let's take a break. Yeah. We'll be back Hang on there. the other side. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I want to thank our listeners. I've had about twenty or twenty five Twitter followers added to my list oh. here. Um, out with Facebook. Uh, I'm not supporting the guy that tried to buy the election in with Twitter because Elon Musk is in the process of purchasing Twitter. Elon Musk is a free speech absolutist. He's not so much a conservative. He's probably a lot of different things in a lot of different places on a lot of different days when it comes to American politics. He would probably infuriate the political right. He would probably infuriate the political left. But when it comes to um, him allowing or his allowing people to express themselves as they see fit without threatening someone or condoning violence. Um, and that's kind of the, um, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, uh, but you can't stop conservatives from expressing themselves. Well, you can't if you're Facebook and you can't if you're Twitter uh, before Elon Musk shows up. But um, th- there's some concern about the sale of Twitter to Elon Musk because some of the research now is showing that there may be as much as 20% of the account spam or fake Twitter accounts, obviously that changes the valuation. And if Twitter disclosed or if Twitter filed their SEC filings and and stand behind that 5% number and they can't substantiate it or must can prove the number's 20%, they have enormous legal peril. I mean, there's a lot of legalities and lawsuits they'll have to deal with uh, coming down the pike. But yeah, at card at K-A-R-D-S-C is our Twitter handle. And, um, you know, I'm kind of uh, adios to Facebook and Zuckerberg. Um, hello to Twitter and Elon Musk. Now, now and I just hope pressure, that, the pressure's on you now, so you're going to get these new followers. You're going to have to be interesting with your tweets. Well, I'll try okay. my best. Pressure's uh, on. The reason I like Twitter better is because I start on a Facebook post and it turns into a novel. Yeah, and you can't do that with Twitter. It, True, it, it forces you to basically govern yourself or police yourself. I don't have that much um, things worth hearing to be. I mean, I think I do, but I know I don't. I mean, there, there, there's some I don't know weirdness about when I start putting something together on Facebook and I start rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling, and the next thing you know, my wife says, "Good land, that was a long Facebook post you put on." On Facebook today. How about put, put the little teaser on Twitter and then to hear the long, detailed explanation, tune into the radio you know, show. Yeah, there, well, you there you go. There you go. We'll play off the radio station, but at Card SC is our Twitter handle, and we're going to be active on Twitter whether Musk buys it or not. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. And I'll throw in there, by the way, uh, by the way at Live953 is also the Lawrence Station's okay. uh, Twitter. Okay. Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, not on Twitter, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm one of those happy warriors, you know. I'm a conservative, and most of us are. We're not angry. We're we're tired. We're tired of being lied to. Tired of being peed on and said 
It's raining. I mean, this is the most blatant presidency I've ever seen as far as walking out and telling you a bald-faced lie and then not even acknowledge it. They, they don't understand that video exists forever. They sat there, you, you were talking the other day about the Ultra Maga and the Maga King and this and that, and they asked Jen Psaki about it, and she said, oh, yeah, that was Biden's. I, he came up with that all by himself. <laughs> well, come to find out, they poll-tested this damn thing for six months to find the exact right. So that's how ignorant they think we are. But Rush proved in his program and to his advertisers that most of the bots in Twitter and Facebook are, are generated by about 25 people. He did an algorithm one day because they were all worried about losing uh, sponsors. And he told them, just hold still. I'll give you everything back if I'm wrong. And come to find out the, the 10 million or whatever hits they were getting came from about 25 people. So Rush broke the code on the, the Twitter sphere as far as fake bots and everything else. And that's how he survived. But yeah, I'm a happy warrior, and I'm going to stay a happy warrior. Because there's only one person I trust in, and that's Jesus Christ. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. You know, Limbaugh had kind of a complicated history with social media. Um, I've told Rev, and I could be wrong here, but when we started feeling some of the effects of social media early in the radio show, we've been on the air 10 years now, and, and we made kind of a joint decision that we were going to complement ourselves with social media. We're going to be active on social media. Um, but but you start going down the road. In other words, you put some effort into a, into a Facebook post that you think is worth reading. I mean, you know who your audience is. We have this relationship, this camaraderie, this fraternal uh, friendship. And uh, the next thing you know, you hear about shadow banning or, or you get censored. And we've, I mean, we, we've gotten censored and not know it, but we've got censored here and we know it. We're well aware of it. We went a period of time. I don't know. You tell me whether we're back. We, we couldn't boost post and we mm-hmm. couldn't do some of these other things because we were spreading disinformation about COVID or spreading disinformation about the election was stolen. The one thing that I think Twitter does have the potential to be is the allowance of you to express yourself however you see fit. Once again, you can't. Um, promote violence, nor should you uh, be desirous of promoting violence, but you can say whatever you choose to say in whatever fashion you choose to say it. And Elon Musk says, I'm not messing with you. I mean, there are going to be certain guidelines and certain parameters or, or, or guardrails, but they're going to be, you know, they're going to give you a lot of room to roam. And, um, and that's just kind of a, uh, that's encouraging to me. And, and, and the one thing I think we'll all agree as much praise as I've given to Limbaugh recently I think the one thing Limbaugh liked was having control. I mean, he wanted all the control. He hardly had any gas, and he didn't have many callers. Um, he liked the show being formatted on his ability to speak and communicate, and he was a, a genius at it. He was brilliant at it. Um, but I think Twitter is – I mean, I think Musk is right. I think it can become the de facto digital town square or town hall if they'll allow it to be. But once people feel they're being subjected – to censorship, they're not going to participate. They're just not. 
I mean, it's a little bit insane to put all that effort into a Facebook post or a or a Twitter post and, and, and to be conscientious about what goes out there with your name associated and then to find out, well, um, the liberal guy doesn't deal with censorship, but, you know, you the conservative, because of your opinion about COVID, your opinion about mass mandates, your opinion about the 2020 election uh, don't suit the um, – uh, you know, the, uh, what, what do we call them? Content moderators. There you go. The content moderators, content moderators at Twitter, fact checkers, fact checkers at Facebook. And, um, so, so yeah, you know, I've, um, and we had a good following. I mean, I had 5,000 Facebook friends. I think we had about 2000 on a waiting list, but, um, I'm just not going to subject myself to a marketplace that doesn't appreciate what I bring to the table. I mean, that's insane. I mean, think about it. Why would you uh, why would you, I mean, unless you're just crazy about yourself and you believe that what you have to say is, is that critical or vitally important, I don't believe that about myself. So why would I put effort into a Facebook post and send it out there knowing that my worldview is going to be censored by some weird weird algorithm or content moderator? Right. I mean, not that, only that they didn't appreciate it, they I, and I believe it. Those algorithms tamp it down so it doesn't get any sort of mass yeah, it, distribution. It's, it's deep into your feed. You know, when you when you check your check your news feed, you know those who argue that the election was not legitimate, or argue that mask mandates made no sense, or or argue that you know is it a vaccine or is it a therapeutic agent? Um, those opinions are not allowed uh, to be as pronounced as some of the others. Uh, we'll find out how Twitter does under the uh, the ownership of Elon Musk, if indeed they can clean up this discrepancy about are 5% of the accounts fake or, or spam or is 20% uh, the actual number. Talking about MAGA, Joe was mentioning this a second ago. Um, Joe Biden incoherently mumbled uh, toward the end of last week, MAGA, you know, MAGA king and extreme MAGA. And Jen Psaki, in one of her last press conferences, tried to argue that Biden thought of this on the fly. Biden had thought of anything on the fly since the 80s. I mean, it's been 30 years since Joe Biden thought of anything on the fly. You know what people in the White House are afraid of? That he may think of something on the fly. I mean, that's what they're ultimately fearful of. Every time he meets the media, the one thing they're deeply concerned about is that he will come up with something on the fly. And, um, I mean, it would be mumbled and we would have to, what did he say? Did you catch that? Uh, you know, because it's just kind of weird to watch him articulate himself. But, I mean, if Joe came up with this on the fly, then moveon.org must have the, the best uh, marketing and printing uh, apparatus in the country because they're pouring about $30 million into some of these midterm battles. Um, and it's going to be us versus MAGA. I mean, that's the message that they're putting out. And Joe's exactly right. And I think it's been disclosed now that MAGA was poll tested, uh, that there were groups put together, focus groups put together, and America First didn't offend anybody. America First was a bit celebrated. Uh, would you want to be an America Firster or not? Well, I'm a Democrat, but I swear that America First agenda kind of makes sense. You know, I don't want to give Trump any credit, uh, but, but I, you know, really and truly, maybe some of these America Firsters have it right. Maybe we pay too much attention or prioritize things that we shouldn't have prioritized. Maybe it is time. I mean, I've got Democrats who kind of in, in the most indirect way imaginable, they'll never give Trump credit. They'll never consider themselves to be America firsters. But if you listen to them long enough, they'll kind of circle all the way back to, 
Well, yeah, and, and this America First kind of does make sense. You know, all these um, interventionist policies, all these globalist or internationalist policies, you know, the farming out of CDC's role to the WHO, and and it's all, you know, kind of the Davos man and the World Economic Forum. Uh, but but MAGA poll test a lot negatively or a lot more negatively than, than America First. MAGA has an aggressive overtone. It, it has an aggressive um, connotation to it. MAGA. When you when I say MAGA, what do you think of? You think of that red cap, don't you? I mean, that red baseball sure, cap. Um, MAGA. You, you know what we say? Hey, I mean, I've said it a hundred times. In the early days of Trump, they'd have these rallies, and some of the protesters would show up. And I would almost, I'd always say to my wife or kids, I'd say, hey, that they want to fight, they went to the right crowd, that MAGA crowd, they're not going to run from anybody. So even I c- kind of inferred that this uh, this this MAGA crowd could be a little more aggressive than for its own good. But but and that's why I've tried to coin the phrase, or not coin the phrase, but tried to uh, repeat the phrase "America first, America first, America first. I think the majority of Americans relate to America first. I think um, I think Obamacare was kind of the um, the Republicans were successful in labeling the not so affordable care act Obamacare. I mean, it's not Obamacare, but they couldn't escape that. I mean, it was just uh, that was an entrenched part of the messaging uh, because it was unpopular to begin with, and and it was Obama and Obamacare became how many people refer to it as the uh, the the Affordable Care Act? I mean, it's Obamacare. So the Republicans nailed that and they made him own it. Now, eventually, we got accustomed to uh, you know just the way things are. We tend to out of sight, out of mind. You know what I mean? Years go by. And, and we just kind of accept things as, though, well, this is the new normal in, in healthcare America today. But, but I can assure you this, um, you will hear MAGA millions of times during the midterm elections in 2022 because they poll tested and MAGA once again has this kind of aggressive nature about it. And the, the independent voters, here we go with the, um, and women, we get, we, I mean, it's all in your hands. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I would assume I'm not seeing any, um, uh, some some of the uh, sample sizes and and who the samplings were, but I would imagine uh, this is going to be effective for women. Women don't like you know the aggressive nature of politics. Uh, women would be more inclined to not want to be a part of the MAGA movement. In other words, the Republicans will say America first, and a female voter would go, "I got no problem with that." But the the Democrats will say, "That's not America first. That's MAGA." And then the female voter would say, "Oh no no no, I don't want to be a part of that." I mean, that, those guys will, you know, next thing you know, they're tearing things up and, and, and having fights and, you know, violence and, and all the, I, I don't want to be any part of that. So the women are who they're targeting here. I mean, the, you know, the, the Republican voter doesn't care if you call it MAGA. Me personally, I could care less if you call it MAGA or America first. The, the reason I began repeating America first is exactly where we are today because I felt MAGA could eventually be used in some negative way and that's what the Democrats are going to try to do. So moveon.org is going to spend about $30 million in some of these battleground states, Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, trying to think of another, uh, maybe or maybe not North Carolina, depending on what some of the polling goes or what some of the polling does. Now, um, the situation in Pennsylvania. Well, let's do this first because somebody uh, texted me a second ago or sent a Facebook message. I'm still checking Facebook. Uh, <laughs> But someone sent me a message saying, 
talking about with Dr. Kaufman, you know, the civility in politics, the decency in politics. Um, I get that. I do. But let, let me just tell you what it is and what it'll always be. Politics is a contact sport. It always has been. It always will be. And if you don't have the stomach for the contact, if you don't have the, I mean, if there's not something about you, uh, my wife does not like confrontation. It, it upset her at the debate uh, last Thursday night, two Thursday nights ago, uh, be two, two Thursday nights, but this coming Thursday, week and a half ago, it, it got, it bothered her, you know, when they began to be argumentative one with another, when Russell and Tom started going after one another or Ken Richardson and Russell started going after one another, um, or Barbara Arthur said some aggressive things. She said, it just makes her uncomfortable. Uh, it doesn't make me uncomfortable at all because I've accepted that just as this is the nature of politics, it is a contact sport. It is a zero sum game. There's not going to be um, two Republican primary winners in Pennsylvania. There's not going to be two Republican primary winners in North Carolina. There's not going to be two presidents. There's not going to be two vice presidents. There's not going to be two Republican nominees for county council or city council. Somebody wins, therefore someone loses. And people kind of get caught up in this. And it gets very, very intense and very, very aggressive. So for those who want more civility and more reverence and, and more balance and more, I don't know, hope and optimism in politics, it's a contact sport. It's always been a contact sport. It will always be a contact sport. And those who don't get their feelings easily hurt and don't mind hurting other people's feelings normally do better than those who um, possess the, uh, the, the opposite personalities. And what is, it, what is it you say about tasting your own blood? Well, I mean, you hadn't lived till you taste your own blood. <laughs> And, um, you know, most people think they can do that. I got a buddy of mine decided to run for the house. And um, he, he ran. And, I, you know, we met at Starbucks one day years ago. And he said, um, what advice would you give me? I said, be yourself. I mean, if you say ain't y'all a lot like I do, say ain't y'all. If you don't, you know, if you're a little more buttoned up, be but don't try to be something you're not. Be who you are. And I said, be, be ready to taste your own blood. And he said, what does that mean? I said, you'll find out. I mean, if you run for, for a, you know, for a competitive office, you'll find out. So about, I don't know, a couple of months later, he calls me and says, it doesn't taste good. I said, what do you mean? He said, I was in a debate last night and the guy came after me and I mean, it, it really bothered me. And I said, well, Hey, it's, it's a rough and tumble world. It's a contact sport. Uh, some of us, yeah. Some of us have the bent gene, what we kind of, um, <laughs> what we enjoy that sort of thing. Um, some don't, I don't like confrontation. I don't like being argumentative, but, but I'm certainly not shy about it. And I understand when you put your hat in the ring, when you put you, uh, when you enter the arena, just be prepared. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here's David in the PD. Good morning, David. Yes, sir. Good morning. Uh, yeah, we're talking about, uh, Bucky's, right? We were earlier. Imagine yep. a, a better name than Bucky Baker. Now, there's your NASCAR <laughs> name. Could you imagine a morning show, Bucky Baker, the Bucky Baker morning show? There you go. Uh, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> Too bad I didn't think Dr. about that. Bolt, Dr. Bolt brought up a good thing, the mind of an 18-year-old. Now, Ken, I can delve into the mind of an 18-year-old Ken Ard, um, do you remember the pre-Hugo windjammer down there at Isle of Palms? I sure do. And the, the crazy Zacks in North Myrtle Beach. You remember that, right? I certainly do. Yes, sir. 
that back, you, you, let me tell you something about inflation. That was $25 and a half tank of gas. All right. You could have done, you could enjoyed all that. And we got this guy up there in New York. How in the hell do you get at 18 years old? How do you get a gun and all this kind of stuff at 18 years old? And how do you afford to get to Buffalo from Binghamton or whatever? So my my question would be logistics. I mean, where do you get all this money from? That's where I would be looking at this. But um, the, the, these kids, man, they need to get their minds off these devices. They need to get out in the real world and appreciate nature's beauty. That's what we used to do back in the day. But you think about uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, remember what, what our man Carville said about Pennsylvania? I don't. What did he say? Carville? He said, Pennsylvania is Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Alabama in between. <laughs> and you can, you can look at that, and the man said that, and it's true. And I can tell you this. If you look at these Bush acolytes, Bush 41 was 1-1 one in one Pennsylvania. He won in 88. He lost in 92. Uh, Bush number 43, 0-2 in Pennsylvania. Uh, so the, the W crowd, they didn't do too well. I'll give Trump credit. At least he's one and one. So, you know, and the, the guy got like 3.3 million votes in, in Pennsylvania in 2020. So we, let's hope that the Zuckerberg crowd and the COVID crowd and where you can wear a mask and gloves, that doesn't take over. But but here's one thing I'll leave you with, man. I think about Dr. Oz. This is crazy. We talk about Kahili. What are Dr. Oz's negatives in the Philly suburbs? And this is where this is going to come down to. Because if Dr. Oz wins today, what they need to do, you take Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. West of there, let Dr. Oz campaign there. West of there, let Trump. And that's how you break down this state. Uh, But, you know, the bottom line is, Ken, what do you got to do? You got to win. Have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. You know, talking about the mind of an 18-year-old uh, and a 180-page manifesto, that's bizarre to me. I mean, that that's just crazy to me. Um, I've, I've read some news accounts of what, you know, the grotesque nature of the, the live stream and some of the manifesto. Uh, that's just bizarre to me. I, I want to go to something David said real quick about Bush. Um, I've tried my best to be respectful to the Bush family name. Um, you're more sympathetic to the Bush brand than I ever have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never forgive George H.W. Bush. I don't think these have to be exclusive of one another. I think George H.W. Bush is a very moral and respected man, a decent human being. But George H.W. Bush had a chance to basically implant, not in perpetuity, but but for a long period of time, the Reagan Revolution and he chose to do what country club Republicans do, and that's kind of the go the, the globalist, less nationalist, more internationalist route. Uh, farm out a lot of these things to NATO and the United Nations and uh, you know World Health Organization. I mean, he was a globalist in in general. I mean, uh, George H. W. Bush was a very good and decent man, a celebrated and decorated war hero. Um, I'm still no political fan of George H. W. Bush. And I'm less of a political fan of his son, George W. Bush. And I'll tell you what the Bushes gave us. Uh, When you look at W. Bush in particular, how many former advisors with the Bush administration work at MSNBC or CNN? 
Nicole Wallace hosts a show. Matthew Dowd is a frequent guest on MSNBC and NBC and ABC News, for that matter. Um, when you look at the, some of the foreign policy experts that, that basically cut their teeth during the Bush administration, they have become uh, very anti-America firsters. Um, in fact, uh, Rick Wilson, uh, you know, the guy with Lincoln Project, worked for the Bush-Cheney uh, campaign. He is uh, a Democrat today. I mean, he makes no bones about it. Lincoln Project, uh, they're, they're, they're calling the lie for their mission in life is to stop any America First candidate from running. So when I look at the Bush legacy and the America First dynamic, I think they're, uh, they're, they're not anywhere near complementary of one another. They're, we're not on the same team. And, and when you look at, you know, George H.W. and George W., all I think is globalist. And all I think is, um, is interventionist. And that's just not where I think the Republican Party needs to be. And when you look at how easily their top advisors sold out in the name of, I guess, you know, maybe something in their DNA, and maybe they do believe sincerely that Trump was a, kind of a, 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 you know, a, a national threat to security. Uh, he was careless and reckless. And I mean, we heard him say that, but, but I always thought they said it just to get paid by CNN or by NBC or by whomever um, came along. I guess the point I'm trying to make is I question the conviction of the, the Bush doctrine. I mean, I, you know, when you look at how easily it is for Nicole Wallace to jump the fence and host a show on MSNBC, and I understand gainful employment, and I understand taking advantage of opportunities as they present themselves, but it just seems to me that the alumni of the, of the Bush years are so easily swayed to not be a part of where the Republican Party is headed. It's almost like the Bushes and their acolytes have decided, if I don't get to run the party, then I'm going to try to destroy it. The Carl Roves of the world. Now, now, these guys have egg on their face. Rove is a smart guy. He just refuses to accept reality. Um, I'd love to find the clip when he said, when, when Trump endorsed Ted Budd, uh, it, it looked like McCrory was just going to run away with it. And he had his whiteboard on Fox News one night. might have been Brett Baer. And he said, you know, Trump will win some and lose some. Uh, none will get rained out. But um, this North Carolina endorsement, I mean, he kind of put in the same category with the Kemp-Purdue endorsement in Georgia, which I think is the only stupid endorsement Trump has made. But when I look at that, he was blinded by the 2020 election and Kemp not doing what he thought Kemp should have done. And I just think he just just put his name out there in a place that that serves him no purpose. Um, But Bud uh, is going to beat uh, beat, uh, Purdue. Uh, I think Oz wins in Pennsylvania, but but I want to go back to the, to the to the Bush alumnus because to me, Rev, it seems like okay if we don't control the party, then we'll destroy it. That there's a line in uh, I think it's Boone Pickens's book, "The First Billion Was the Hardest to Make" or is always the hardest to make. Who knows? Uh, billionaires do, I guess. And Boone was a billionaire, uh, but but he, he talked about Darla Moore. You know, Lake City's Darla Moore, South Carolina's Darla Moore, and he says. You know, the thing about Darla is um, if she didn't need it, she would, uh, I'll say it, she would piss on it so somebody else could use it. You know, kind of the nature of corporate raiders and, and hostile takeovers and not a rough and tumble business. And I just think that's a lousy legacy. And the Bushes seem to me, I don't know that they're pouting because American politics has been real good for the Bush family. Unbelievably generous 
to the Bush family. Part of it, not necessarily the, the the ones that have come out and are doing what they're doing, but the Bushes themselves. I mean, it's a little bit of retribution and payback because Trump called them out during 2016. Well, he, he did. There was a personal grudge or vendetta right. there that was so in they play. They won't forget that. I mean, but, Jeb's but, not going to forget that. George is not going to forget but it. But even prior to that, it was it was always interesting to me how easy the the some of the respected figures in the Bush administration went to work at MSNBC or took a job at CNN. It just led me to believe, were they ever convicted to anything or was their conviction to feeding at the trough of government? Um, the movement didn't sustain. And, and I'll say this. I think George W. Bush had as much to do with giving you um, Donald Trump as Barack Obama did. I mean, I think the interventionist policies, I'm not saying everything he did was bad. I'm not insinuating that. And I think at their core, the Bushes are good people. I mean, I think George W. Bush is genuinely a good man. I think George I H. W. Like Bush it. is genuinely a good man. But but once again, um, the, the acolytes and the doctrine, in other words, the, um, the way the Bushes uh, wanted the Republican Party to operate and conduct itself, once they didn't have control of the party, they didn't just say, okay, um, I get it. I mean, this party's changed right before our very eyes. There were some things we got right, some things we got wrong, but the party's been unbelievably good to me. And I'm not, um, I'm not the person to, I'm not, it's not my prerogative to decide where the party goes from here. It's the people's uh, pr- party. It's the people's prerogative. And, and I'll go along with them because they went along with me. In other words, the, the, the insults that Bush and his acolytes are throwing out or really insults toward the very people who got them elected. Um, the Republican primary voter got both Bushes elected, and they don't find uh, much good to say about the current Republican primary voter, but that's the same group of people who voted for George H.W. one time, got him elected, and George W. twice, and got him elected. And, I mean, the Bushes, the Bush doctrine, let me say it this way, the Bush doctrine and the Bush acolytes, I wish they'd go away. And they really and truly have tried to go away, but they've tried to burn the party down on their way out because, once again, I guess wealthy, privileged people get what they want, and when they don't, they throw a fit. And it seems to me that's kind of what uh, the Bushes did as they uh, didn't get their way uh, with Jeb getting elected. And then, you know, most recently, I think the nephew of George W. lost the attorney general's race in Texas. Um, it's just a different Republican party, but it's still the Republican party and you are a Republican president, but because you don't get to form and shape and mold the party the way you want it to be formed and shaped and mold, then you've got nothing but bad things to say about the current Republican party. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Then we'll take our break. Here's Josh in Darlington. Good morning, Josh. I just have a real quick, um, statement, um, I understand you said that uh, George Bush was a good and moral, decent man. Um, I don't really understand how someone can be good and moral and lead us into war and kill millions of civilians and still be considered good and moral. Do you believe he knew that they didn't have weapons of mass destruction, or do you believe he trusted the intelligence community that led him down that road? I believe he trusted the intelligence community. But isn't that kind of moral? I mean, in other words, if he believed— that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. We know at one time he did because he used them on the Kurds. I mean, we know he had them at one time. But, but I mean, if, if we were led into war and Bush was the president, but we had intelligence that convinced us, him included, that he had weapons of mass destruction, 
Um, I kind of understand that. Well, I mean, I understand, but still, going to war um, is, is is not a, 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 a something I would say is, is good and moral and decent because you know people are going to die and things are going to get broke. Um, and if you're if you're led by by a bunch of morons, you're going to do moronic things. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate that. What what Josh is basically saying? I, well, I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but you know, the the act of declaring war is immoral. Uh, I, I don't I don't buy that. I mean, I, I would rather see us not go into as many excursions, and I guess that's what makes me a non-interventionist Republican. But I think when your intelligence community say that he has weapons of mass destruction, now I'll say this: I think Cheney's sinister. I think Rumsfeld was sinister. I, th- I think Bush was a bit naive. And I think he was led uh, down the road of believing that Saddam. We know Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. We didn't find them when we declared war and went to Baghdad and, you know, overthrew the regime and eventually, you know, captured and killed Saddam Hussein. Well, I mean, his own countrymen killed him, uh, hanging, execution by hanging. Um, and, and I just think to say that that the act of when Bush declared war on Iraq, and we invaded Baghdad and overthrew the regime of Saddam Hussein. I think he did it on information that he trusted, and and, and that's a fairly it as a threat to our country. Well, and your and job I, as president and, is to protect the country, and I think that's a fairly moral act. So I do believe I'll stand by my guns. I think George W. Bush was a, a moral man who believed that he was doing the right thing when we invaded uh, Iraq. I don't think for a second Cheney believed. Um, or, or Rumsfeld, I think they're warmongers. I mean, I really believe that. I think Bush surrounded himself with more warmongers. <laughs> and, we're um, hearing voices of warmongers these days. Yeah, well, I mean, of course we do. I mean, it's kind of the nature. It's the business of Washington. Um, Raytheon, McDonnell Douglas, Boeing, um, General Dynamics, Honeywell. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made uh, in declarations or acts or involvement in, uh, in foreign conflict. Take a break. Back in a minute. There are periods of time when you do this, there's a dominant story, and there's no question when you pull up in the parking lot early that morning, you know you're going to have an extensive conversation about X, Y, or Z. And there are other periods of times where there are kind of brush fires everywhere. You got a little bit of a story here and a little bit of a story there. You got some new information on COVID um, that really reinforces my belief that it is the epic failure in modern American history. What we did with our economy and what we entrusted to our public health officials is unforgivable. I mean, the, the scary part of this is not what the government did, because government loves power, not what the bureaucrats did. They like to be in charge. Uh, the scary part of this is 40-some-odd percent of Americans. I've seen it at 43. I've seen it as high as 48. But somewhere uh, north of 40%, between 40 and 50% of Americans believe that you should still wear a mask when flying on an airplane. We have permanently scarred the psyche of America and Americans in general. And I'll tell you, the lessons we taught young people, when, when told to stand in line, you stand in line. When told to sit down and shut up, you sit down and shut up. When told to put a mask on, you put a mask on and don't ask uh, questions. When told to stop you know, uh, cooking food in your restaurant, you stop doing that. And the reality is north of 40% of Americans still believe that you should wear a mask when flying in an airplane in May of 2022 is more scary, uh, more more bothersome to me 
than what the government did because the government did what governments always do. Give me the power and I'll certainly take it and potentially and eventually abuse it. And I would say this, you want to wear a mask, go for it. Yeah, but it scares the living daylights out of me to know nearly half of America, half the people believe we should still be wearing masks. Wow. Back in a minute. Rev was on assignment yesterday, so today we'll do our Takes Tuesdays to make Fridays uh, trivia. Pepsi of Florence is our sponsor Monday and Friday. Today's Tuesday. We didn't do a trivia yesterday, so here's the question. We've got a Pennsylvania primary today. Everybody's paying close attention. In the political world, most people watching Seinfeld, but in the political world they are. What is the football team, the NFL franchise that resides in Pennsylvania's second biggest city? What is the name of the NFL team that calls Pennsylvania's second biggest city home? 843-661-0937 is our number. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. You want a t-shirt and a six-pack of Pepsi product if you can correctly identify the NFL team that calls the second largest city in Pennsylvania home. Let's go to the phone. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh Steelers. You're right. Yep. Who is this and where are you calling from? Uh, this is Rujan. Okay, Rujan. Hey, thank you for listening. Thank you for calling. I think we had Rujan teed up earlier, but he had something come up and we can get, we'll, we'll catch up another day. But thank you, Rujan. Appreciate you listening. Yeah, the Pittsburgh Steelers are the, uh, the NFL franchise for Pennsylvania's second biggest city. The Phillies and the Eagles and the 76ers would be representative of Pennsylvania's biggest city. Uh, the Republican primary today in Pennsylvania is going to tell me a lot of what I need to know about the 7th Congressional District in South Carolina. And somebody may uh, somebody named Oz may win. Former President Trump endorses Dr. Oz. Imagine the odds you could have gotten in Vegas <laughs> 10 years ago if you would have showed up with that proposition. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.